Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 104. Now this is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu and I'm so glad you could join us. And boy, do we have a jam-packed show for you. Again, as promised, it's a fortnight from the last time I said he'd be back and he is. Musa Kalenga, what's up, bruh? What's up, Andile? Mama, I made it to the second show. <laughs> yeah, dog. Get used to it. Get used to it, folks. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a really great show. Lots of stuff to discuss. But as usual, I'm hoping it's going to be fantastic. That's true. Um, not only do we have you here on the mic, but we have a special guest who may be dropping in. We're crossing our fingers because he's weaving his way towards us. Um, he's easily one of East Africa's finest digital heads and arguably one of the most connected in individuals in kenya uh we won't say who he is just in case he doesn't rock up and then we're just <laughs> then we left here with a, an empty segment but maybe maybe we can play a game maybe you can guess who it is <laughs> in the meantime guess who it is and um yeah here's to hoping he makes it in time so uh, that's going to be an extra special show but also extra special because last week we didn't get a chance to um you know cover that week's news because i was away in london and in, instead of uh, covering the week's news of course we put out uh, content that kept you guys uh you know held you guys down until this weekend so we've got tons of stuff to talk about uh, but before we get to all of that uh this episode of the african tech roundup is brought to you by europe's preeminent african tech event the afrobytes tech conference and it's going down in paris between june 8th and 9th 2017 and we're honored to be one of their partners this year really really uh, stoked to be a part of the program uh, facilitating a a panel uh, looking forward to that I'll be speaking alongside a killer list of individuals I rattled off a ton of them uh, two weeks ago and um, what you need to do is basically go check out how well curated this event has become uh, you can find all the information you need at afrobytes.com uh, it will be hosted at Medef which is of course the largest entrepreneur network in France uh, lots of really important people starting to to buy into the notion of Africa being not not a flash in the pan but a serious player in terms of the global tech community and we're really glad to be part of what Afrobytes is doing in France come uh, the, the 8th and the 9th of June. Can't wait to see you there. And so before we get into the, the week's news, Musa, what you've been up to, man? Uh, you're a busy man. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I'm a busy man. No, there's been a lot happening. Um, we're cooking up something in, uh, in the kitchen um, around my new business, which is an advertising uh, startup. So I'm going to be sharing some of that uh, in the next coming weeks. So that's been keeping me quite busy. But I'm also uh, working towards a masterclass. So... Um, as part of uh, what I do, I try and help people understand kind of the context of, of digital marketing, um, not necessarily being the thing anymore, but around marketing in a digital context. Um, so next week, 3rd of June, we're running a masterclass uh, in Johannesburg um, at the Standard Bank Incubator. And hopefully, you know, whoever can rock up will get a little bit of insight. It's a three-hour jam-packed um, kind of uh, immersion. Uh, and we're trying to design it so that people can leave there with something, you know, something tangible. Um, so that's what I've been working towards. And uh, so far, so good. You're becoming like an educator. Is this going to be available online eventually? Is it going to be like a little course uh, available on something like Skillshare or, or uh, Udemy or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So we are converting the, the content um, to be on a, a learning management system called Clock Education. Um, so it will be freely available um, and we'll be updating that and making sure that we've got fresh case studies and the rest of it. So um, for the moment, we're starting out with a one-on-one -on -one interaction, but definitely part of our next kind of iteration around the content is going to be how we make it available online. So so you will be able to get that online. 
pretty good. And the reason I know you've been busy, even though I've been away, is because I've been getting these emails from your team uh, inviting me to, you know, to basically uh, beta test some of the interesting things that you guys have baking. I, I know I can't say much about it, but yeah, I'm on it that I'm on the list. <laughs> of course, you're on the list and hopefully we can get some feedback from you. But uh, as you said, we're going to come and tell the, the listeners all about it. I'm quite excited. I think we, we're doing some interesting things um, without blowing too much steam uh, up our own uh, proverbials but um yeah we're going to be telling you all about that but we're solving big problems for smes you know i think we um we when i say we my, my team and i really believe in unlocking opportunities for african startups african small businesses um and therefore hopefully we have one of the solutions so yeah excited 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 and i of course have been in london for the internet of things world forum it it was actually quite an eye-opener uh all the biggies you might expect to be at the event were at the event the likes of cisco rockwell automation intel who else uh you know they'll feel bad for me leaving them out of course uh, dimension data flying the flag uh for for africa indeed south africa out there and it was really interesting to um to, sh uh, to listen to all the incredible use cases for IoT coming out from the rest of the world, um, case studies for amazing work being done. Uh, but also, in, in, in my interest there was, was really uh, to figure out what's applicable to our developing world context and also interrogate some of these big companies uh, around, you know, the sort of digital ethics yeah. that are coming up because of the, the proliferation of big data and how it's used as a result of the Internet of Things. Of course, security issues as well. So it was quite an eye-opening week. Again, uh, I was told it was I, my first time in London, by the way, and as I'm, I was told that it was an, for a first-time visit, the weather I enjoyed while I was there is unprecedented. It was incredible, like averaged 23 to 27 degrees the whole time. It was awesome. Are you serious? Yeah, that is unprecedented. No rain. It was incredible, except for the sad bombings in Manchester, which which sort of marred things slightly. But the Brits certainly do just get on with it, though. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 very sad. But I'm glad you had great weather. I'm also interested in, I mean, key themes, like what was coming out. I think Internet of Things, as you said, in our context, uh, you know, are we there? Are we are we behind the curve? What are the things that people should be thinking about? I'm quite interested to know. So we will definitely be, I'm glad you're interested. And if you're curious, it means our, in, our listeners may just be in the good news is I got a ton of interesting content, amazing conversations. I was asking questions just, just to give you a taster. Um, so the, corp, the, the, the big corporates are looking at things from the standpoint of how do we improve the rate of success in terms of companies who are adopting the internet of things as part of their digital transformations because apparently according to research that cisco's done only 26 percent of iot related projects are actually successful in the corporate and organizational landscape and that's a really, really a bad thing. It's, it doesn't bode well for companies like Rockwell and, you know, the likes of Intel and, of course, Cisco in, in terms of, like, enthusing other clientele if other people aren't and getting it done so well. And then they've also identified some pain points around why it doesn't work out. Best practice approaches to rolling out solutions gradually or adopting uh, lean startup methodology all sorts of things are being discussed in terms of how corporates can best leverage this trend and, and, and maximize it. So that's from a corporate standpoint. And then there's all these interesting things around uh, public use cases in terms of how, you know, IoT has the, the, the potential to improve the lives of, of, you know, public citizens, you know. So there's a ton of stuff. And I'm not even doing it justice because I, I spoke to people way smarter than me. And I can't wait to share it with all of you um, in due course. That will happen. I mean, if you don't mind me giving my two cents, because I think 
the the low success rate is quite interesting. I I, I was uh, having discussions with the guys from PwC around the research they did for the digital IQ, and I think I mentioned it last show um, that a lot of CEOs seem to be struggling with like basic understanding of digitizing their enterprises, yet they're still investing up to seventy four percent of their resources on things like artificial intelligence. Right. So my question is, if you are still struggling to digitize your enterprise, how is it that you're investing in artificial intelligence? Because clearly, there's those things are like you know the incremental learning. If you understand how data works, you understand social media, then maybe you can, you know, iterate around that and understand how to get central view of customer, then you can iterate around that. And, you know, you have to build your knowledge base and understanding how they work. So the low success rate, I think probably is due to the fact that these guys are probably under pressure to do stuff. um, And they don't know what they're actually doing. So they invest in things and they just don't get value. And certainly the promise is real. It's just the challenges are often underestimated or misunderstood altogether. Um, a key thing to come out of the conference again is talent uh, or the lack thereof in terms of executing. Also, it's, it's not just about trying to look at your business and thinking, hey, where would where can we get more data by sprinkling sensors all over the place? It's, it's about um, you know approaching it with a holistic mindset, also understanding that uh, a staggered approach as opposed to approaching it uh, as like one massive project, also admitting the gaps in knowledge or competencies within your own team. So there's a lot of things that came out of that conference. And I mean, you have to take all of it with a pinch of salt because you, it's, it's the likes of Cisco, right? Saying, you know, teams need help. And, and of course, come to us. <laughs> yeah, come to me. <laughs> I mean, take that with a pinch of salt. But again, like you say, you do have digital offices, chief information officers, certainly MDs, CMOs even, who are, latching onto this trend, throwing a ton of budget at it without um, adequate thinking or adequate, yeah, adequate understanding or appreciation for what it takes to actually, you know, milk this trend. Yeah, well, I think, as you said, it's a trend and hopefully um, the understanding starts to starts to increase so they can see better returns than 26%. I mean, that's not encouraging. But as you said, I think it's going to be one of those things that they have to get right. So, yeah, looking forward to more uh, more snippets from your uh, from your trip. So, and they will definitely be coming. It might be the, in the coming week. I was thinking of doing like a whole IoT themed episode. We'll see how it goes. No promises, but you'll, the insights you will definitely get in due course. Cool, cool. We like promises. So can you make a promise? Yeah, yeah, I don't do promises on this show. <laughs> okay, fine. We'll just hold you to it. Thank you. What is this? Radio? No. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> This is the internet, bro. I like that. Fake news. <laughs> Fake promises. No, we do like we do what we like, but uh, yeah, we keep it real. Cool. Thank you. All right, then. So, on to the news we go. Let's start with MTN now. <laughs> now, if, you, if you're if you listening to the show, you know, last year, MTN like dominated the headlines of the show because, uh, mostly because of their troubles in Nigeria, the Nigerian Communications Commission, of course, finding them around flouting regulations around SIM card registration. It was this massive multi-billion dollar fine that eventually came down to $1 billion that they have to, they've since started to pay off. And of course, leading to MTN's very first year ever uh, of a reported loss, you know, that was just a nasty year for them. Uh, and now it doesn't seem, uh, you know, the, the pressure is letting up. The Rwandese government is fining MTN for flouting regulations in that country. Whoa. Yeah, that's huge. Eh? And I think the fine itself is not uh, anything to be smirked at. It's 8.5 million 
um, francs. So it's going to be, I mean, a million dollars, sorry. Um, and I think the challenge with that is MTN against a huge, huge backdrop of uh, yeah, nothing more than four pars when it comes to regulatory perspective. doesn't seem to be getting this right. Um, and I think when it comes down to core business around things like being in, able to ensure that your SIM cards are regulated to this, which is uh, essentially them deliberately going outside of their, um, their service mandate outside of Rwanda, um, I think it's a challenge. I think uh, from an MTN perspective, I don't know whether there's an internal problem or I don't know whether there's a failure to understand the operating context. But last year, um, you know, they, they set aside a lot of fines that were imposed on them. I think $600 million um, at that time by the Nigerian government. And now it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So it's it's worrying. It's really concerning. Yeah, it turns out MTN hosted, uh, you know, customer data in Uganda and not in, in Rwanda. And Rwanda is really strict about... Um, the need for them to host that data in that country. It's interesting to see data sovereignty becoming an, an, an issue. I remember it was a huge deal last year. I mean, there have been a number of cases, but one of the ones that comes to mind immediately is that case where uh, the Russian government basically just switched LinkedIn off because they're like, homies, you guys have Russian citizen data uh, sitting in, 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 uh, in, in servers in the US. Our rules have since stated that if you're going to have uh, Nigerian, uh, Nigerian, Russian citizen data sitting, oh, in any shape or form, it's going to need to be on servers in that in our country. And it's interesting to see um, a country like Rwanda flexing its muscles around a similar issue. Yeah. I think it's encouraging because Rwanda obviously has been it's like the the shining star of uh, of Africa right now when it comes to innovation, when it comes to enabling small businesses. But more importantly, as you're saying, I think this concept of data sovereignty um, for a country like Rwanda to be able to enforce something like this is really a great signal for them as a, as a country. It means that they're worried and concerned about the correct things, and it means that they're thinking about uh, the preservation of consumer data, which I think is a, an extremely good signal for anybody investing in that sector in Rwanda. So from that perspective, I say big up to the Rwandan government. Um, you know, slap on the wrist definitely for MTN, but uh, I think it's a good signal for a country like Rwanda on a, on a growth trajectory. I think this, this speaks to the notion that data is the new oil, the new gold. Um, I think this, this is a government that understands the power of, of ensuring that what's essentially an IT business like MTN uh, doesn't willy-nilly decide to host its services elsewhere. It must do it in the country. I know there'll be a lot of you know, pure hardline capitalists that will look at this and think, hey, this is protectionism, protectionism or you know, on some level even populism that, you know, that might be problematic. But in the context of what's happening worldwide and how we see even Western nations flex their muscles in this regard, China been doing it. Um, Rwanda is, well within the, is, is clearly well within their right to do this. And MTN was well aware of those rules when they decided to flout them so. Which I think is important, right? So you sign up to operate in a particular context um, and you have to toe the line. So, yeah, I agree with you completely. So there you go. Uh, moving on now to some interesting acquisition news. Right here in South Africa where we based, uh, Capital Appreciation has acquired a business called Synthesis. Now, uh, Capital Appreciation is a GSC-listed group, uh, IT group, and they've acquired 100% of uh, Synthesis software technologies for uh, what is 132.1 million rand, roughly $10 million. Now, Synthesis is a uh, cloud-based uh, software development consulting and integration services 
firm that specializes in uh, servicing financial institutions. This is a pretty big deal. Yep. And they work across all the blue chip financial organizations in South Africa, which I think uh, is important to note uh, because my, my, my personal opinion is that I think the, the, the big five institutions when it comes to financial services are really in trouble because their core systems aren't really set up to innovate around a consumer in the changing world that we're going into. So I think this is typically a signal to market that the software that's being developed using software as a service um, and essentially enabling the value chains for these businesses is going to be uh, uh, something that's going to be important for them to survive in this kind of post-consumer um, um, phase of the market. But uh, at the same time, um, I think Synthesis continues to be an independent operating business, which is also a good thing. Um, you know, So once you've developed IP and skills and services around something, it's often a bad signal when you get ingested and your identity is taken away. So I think that uh, for them is, uh, is great. So as they grow in a specialized role in financial tech, um, I'm pretty sure they're going to be doing extremely well. Financial institutions uh, are typically criticized for not uh, integrating well, um, even when they do have digital platforms. Typically, their their APIs are either closed or ridiculously difficult to to integrate with. And it certainly does seem that um, there's a trend towards uh, partnering or bringing on board partners such as these, who sort of skirt the fintech slash regulation tech uh, landscape. Uh, interestingly, I, I happened to write about that in, uh, I think, two weeks ago in, in, my, uh, in my column for African Independent. And it's interesting to see how important it's becoming to, to have a partner in that space for you know, financial incumbents. Yeah. What's also interesting to note is uh, Synthesis was founded in 1997, right? So it's not a Johnny-come-lately business. But there are areas of, uh, of focus which I think are key to... For anybody that's starting a business in fintech to understand is that they're looking at cloud computing, digital channels, blockchain, and big data. You know, those are kind of um, the four horsemen at the moment in the in the financial technology space. And I think they're trying to you know understand artificial intelligence. There's some machine learning that they've got in there, um, but typically those are very specialized areas in the technology space that most, if not all, banks and financial institutions agree are going to be the future of unlocking consumer opportunities. So um, I really think that that's a, that's a positive signal. Um, and, uh, you know, 1997, that they've paid their dues. Eh? That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, they've, been, they've been around. Exactly. They've been at it. And I think, once again, I think it's also a signal to startups uh, to look at that as, uh, as inspiration. But also, you know, you've got to put in the time. You've got to put in the work. There's uh, this flash-in-the-pan mentality that you create something amazing and then all of a sudden you're a superstar. So well done, Synthesis. Hats off and con- uh, congratulations and good luck, I think. Indeed, he do. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, some more acquisition news. Again, South Africa-based uh, ICT firm Adapt IT Holdings have acquired a hospitality and retail IT company called Micro for $4.2 million. Apparently, the deal was reached on the 10th of May. Now, Micro, as it turns out, uh, specializes in selling software, hardware, and enterprise systems. Uh, they also provide integration and consulting as well as support for various clients within the hospitality industry. Quite a niche. I'm fascinated by this concept of building solidly around niche. Do you think that's key to to perhaps startup founders who are thinking about how to approach, uh, you know, launching into the the big bad world? Yeah, I think I think the more sophisticated a market gets, the more you're going to require to be developing around a niche, right? So in the beginning. Um, I think it's 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 fair to kind of have a broader approach around what you what you bring in as solutions. But I think the more um, sophisticated and the more progressive um, industry or markets are, they they require slightly more turnkey and niche solutions in specific spaces. I was actually funny enough um, at the University of Johannesburg their uh, their their awards evening for the hospitality gr- 
graduates. And I was speaking to them about very much exactly this is that, you know, for young people coming into hospitality, their viewpoint needs to be understanding the value chain, right? If they're going to be able to add value and try and disrupt and do all that kind of stuff, if you've got a full view of what it takes to be able to run, you know, call it a hotel or, or whatever it may be from end to end, you've got a better understanding of what businesses you need to build into the future. Um, and this play, um, which seems to be on software, hardware and enterprise systems, um, for me is a very clever thing to do because I think a lot of people are going to be trying to define the consumer trend of the future around hospitality. What are people going to be consuming? Already it's being disrupted by things like food trucks, by um, um, what are these markets on the weekend. So it's shifting. It's becoming a little bit more nuanced. Um, and big businesses that are in hospitality are probably trying to figure out what that means for their business. Uh, so integrating a business like this that is essentially building that knowledge base, uh, I think is a clever strategic move. And I think they're going to get a lot of value from it in the long run. So I'm hanging out with a mate of mine in London. He's a an architect. He works for an architect, for, but he, you know, he's got quite a few projects here on the continent. Interesting things that he's doing uh, around low cost housing and a, a, a number of different things. But how, but somehow our conversation led to how uh, tech is changing. Speaking to your point about how, you know how tech is basically influ influencing behavior within hospitality and other industries. But he was speaking specifically about the restaurant industry and um, he recently uh, interacted with some folks uh, on a project uh, at, over at WeChat and um, uh, in the context of sort of understanding how uh, China has, you know, just doesn't play by the same rules when it comes to, to apps and, and how it influences consumer behavior. And he says, the folks at WeChat um, shared with him that you know they've got research that shows how WeChat as a as a sort of monster app has changed the retail landscape in in China in the sense that people aren't shopping the same way anymore and the retail spaces that do the the best in China turns out are the ones that are geared towards social interaction and and hanging out and that kind of thing and the mall sort of structure where we build around come and shop by us is is totally gone because people are shopping in app on WeChat online at other portals and other things and when they do go out for an experience or with disposable income to spend it's not to spend on on shoes that they order and, and have delivered at home what they do want to spend on quite differently is experiences and, and, and interesting food i thought that was interesting and it was actually quite jarring to realize whoa you know how tech can have a crazy impact on real life in unexpected ways. That's a, that's a key point. And I think the, the acquisition um, with, with Micros typically speaks, and it's a signal, we, you know, we're speculating. But if you think about the last time you went to any hotel or stayed in any, um, uh, any kind of a hospitality environment, whether it's a hotel or a, or a restaurant, um, if you think about the lack of, uh, of in, or enablement is probably the wrong word, but the lack of integration from a technology perspective, um, even your favorite restaurant, if you think about, do they actually send you regular information about you know specials or news things that are coming up at that basic level, um, let alone have they integrated the entire back, uh, back office operation? So I think there's a huge opportunity. I think the guys that are getting it right are kind of these, these cult and niche following type brands. So I think it started with people like Vida e Cafe, um, who started to understand that they've got a very specific kind of consumer and that consumer wants very specific things um, and they were able to go ahead but uh, the bigger guys you know the Sun Internationals those big groups of people that are getting lots of customers lots of foot um, foot traffic I don't think they've quite cracked how they're going to be able to bring these experiences um, closer to consumer let alone how to create uh, uh, revenue for themselves but the starting point is always data the starting point is always let's understand what's going on before we can do any of this stuff and I think this is typically what this signifies well put there, sir. Now, look, there's another massive acquisition that's happened in the last uh, week or two. 
uh, Vodacom uh, acquiring 34.9% of Safaricom, at least indirectly, um, through its acquisition of another business uh, for roughly $2.6 billion. And I'm not going to touch on this right now because I'm still, fingers crossed, our homie from Kenya is going to make it through because he, he'll have a lot more to share on this, the specifics of it, the implications of this, and what we might or might not or should not read into this particular deal. Uh, and I'll also get him to, to, while he's at it, actually, to speak on the impending uh, interoperability that we uh, we've been hearing might start to happen around Mpesa, so that's going to be interesting. But let's move on to something entirely different. One of Microsoft's co-founders, Paul G. Allen, who you might recall uh, is, is rumored to have been forced out of the company when he took ill, and there was this whole whole hubbub. He was with big friends with uh, with Bill Gates, and you know, word is you know their friendship has never been quite the same since then. Nonetheless, he's in good health now, and he's got a huge um, big data project that's aiming to stop elephant poaching on the continent. That's quite interesting. I don't know much about Paul Allen, but um, you know, I think the interesting thing to note here is once again, uh, you know, the thing I harp on about all the time is you know the one thing that we don't have a shortage of in Africa is problems, um, and I find it quite interesting when people are trying to use technology to solve problems in the in the space of uh, of, of uh, conservation. Um, I think this is a you know huge pat on the shoulder for them, but um, at the same time, I'm always worried about the implementation implementation of such projects and how far um, you'd be able to scale something like this. I think at its core, what they're trying to do essentially is to kind of partnership with lots of game park rangers and managers to be able to create kind of a preemptive uh, response to poaching. So uh, instead of waiting for the incident to happen or, or you know creating a, a long lead time to respond, they're trying to pretty much close that gap, um, which I think is great. Um, and I think the question there is then you know what next um once you've been able to kind of minimize that amount of uh turnaround time and your response time around this illegal activity is that kind of where it ends um there are other areas of conservation that require um attention and i think there's other areas where you can integrate technology um, we tend to focus on the stuff that is uh, you know and sometimes you know everybody's focusing on but i always kind of try and push the envelope and say conservation technology what other solutions are there but for the moment i think it's a great uh, great innovation and intervention so paul allen big up yeah, and look, I mean, I put this this uh, project to Dimension Data's uh, head of IoT. I believe he's the vice president of IoT. I think that's his position at Dimension Data. His name is Anton Juester, and uh, I met him at the IoT forum in in London. And I and I and I asked him what he makes of this uh, of this project. And he, look, he's he's quite optimistic that it'll yield something. And being big data, I think his critique of it was. Uh, being d- big data driven, his critique of it was well, it's it kind of seems to um, to be reactionary. Well, look in time, look heat maps and and the data will start to point and allow them, like you say, to to preempt what may or may not be a strike. But um, to the mind of of someone like uh, like Anton, uh, he's very bullish naturally, given his role at, at Dimension Data on the role of IoT in terms of. Uh, in real time, being able to to react or even uh, prevent the unnecessary death of an animal, say due to poaching, and I know they've got at Dimension Data a, a project around rhino poaching, which they which they're beta testing with some nature reserves in the Kruger National Park, and I think really the the perfect project is a little bit of both, right? IoT to sort of be in a position to provide real time data to prevent poaching, and then of course big data being crunched into like hopefully AI driven software that helps us start to 
have a sense of where the poaching may or may not happen and where to direct our resources. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think there's going to be one solve in the beginning. I don't think there's going to be a silver bullet. But I do think, as you said, these problems have to be attacked from different perspectives. And ultimately, if the focus is solving the problem, I don't think we'll have an issue. Um, you know, just as a matter of interest, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if uh, as an extension of this project, you know, we do know that there's lots of research underway at the moment trying to, you know, link the brain controlling um, external things. You know, there's this research that Facebook is running, there's stuff happening on medical science. But wouldn't it be interesting if you could implant chips into the brains of these animals? Because remember, there's always that theory that animals can pick up on danger before you can. You know, when there's an earthquake, animals make for the hills because they've got these sensor things. So wouldn't ultimately that be like the holy grail of, you know, being able to read from animals' minds the fact that they're all saying, oh my goodness, something is about to happen um, because that then takes the the big data which is kind of giving you an external view it takes the um you know the the, the 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 preemptive response time and then it kind of infuses this like feeling of an animal wouldn't that be cool it's interesting you mentioned that because again dimension data in the sort of high-end sports or commercial sports high performance sports arena they've been trying out these iot devices that are literally able to to track like there's there's okay so there's what your your apple watch can do and then there's what this the super bra or the sort of e-bra can do in terms of like uh checking your blood pressure and your blood sugar and in real time uh checking you know your anxiety levels and all sorts of kind of things and they're applying this thinking to tracking animals and and they're realizing that just having a a, a sort of sensor on the animal's back uh isn't enough because you know, who's to say it stops moving for four hours. Uh, it didn't die like in the first one, you know, that kind of thing. And if we start to become more and more intuitive in terms of how we implant devices that allow, you know, basically uh, uh, broadcasting into the cloud, there may be ways for us to start to become better and better at protecting these animals. Yeah, I think you know, also, you know, the exploration of, you know, that that's a whole kind of landscape, which I don't think human beings have quite explored, is how how you start to understand emotive disposition for animals. You know, that's a whole other study of science that could be fascinating on its own. So, yeah, you're actually talking about like a sort of biohack, right? Like a sort of hacking. Yeah. Yeah. Which means that, you know, we kind of take in this relationship we have with these beasts to the next level. But you're quite right. So if we can get in the minds of these animals and initially try and pick up on signals that signal danger, because if we're saying that they're the best at doing this, there must be a way um, and figure out that pattern. And then the next level that will then be how do we how do we redefine the relationship that we have with animals based on technology, which, as I said, is a I don't know what that field of science is called, but I'm pretty sure there's someone smart out there that can maybe give us some information. Holler at us. You know who you are. If you know if you know what's up, you know what we're talking about. If there's a field of science that covers what we're talking about, heck, you might even think this is a bunch of nonsense. We want to hear from you anyway. Give us a shout at African Roundup on Twitter, and of course, drop us an email at hello at africantakeroundup.com. Now, staying with East African news, uh, and we'll just touch on this and come back to it. Hopefully, when our when, when when our guest arrives at this point, if he doesn't, it will be such a disappointment. The number of times I've mentioned it, we're gonna role play, so you guys won't even know. <laughs> Put on an East African accent. <laughs> That's correct. And then we'll just roll with it. And we'll just lose all our listeners in that part of the world. Yeah, fake news. You said fake news, right? <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, that's not happening, by the way. So anyway, so uh, Google's Nairobi-based uh, fiber project called C-Squared has closed 100 million US dollars worth of funding. And um, you'll recall that uh, this project started out as something called Project Link back in 2011. Uh, something that then got spun into this 
this company. I'm not sure whether it's a for-profit or non-for-profit. I'd guess at this point that it's a not-for-profit um, that's happy to make profit, of course, and probably re reinvest those profits. I, I stand to be corrected, however. So, that is, so the company being C-squared, which started in 2013, and what they are essentially is a carrier-neutral fiber project, which is trying a project that's trying to basically connect East Africa uh, and hopefully, you know, hopefully extend its reach to other parts of the continent as well. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, the result hopefully is going to be lower installation and consumer costs, which is never a bad thing. Um, and I think, you know, naturally companies like Google and, and Facebook are generally all trying to solve for the same thing in the bigger scheme of things is that their businesses depend on um, more people being able to have access, right? A big part of that is the infrastructure. A big part of that is cost of data. A big part of that is, is is the devices. So I think this is a firm play to try and say, how do we kind of lower the barriers as far as uh, infrastructure and, and access? Um, and uh, should we do that? You know, I'm always a big fan of, of, of value being passed on to consumers. So that convergence play is going to be quite important. And yeah, look, uh, how do you feel about Google being at the you know spearheading this effort look i mean let's be fair now they they have they have three other partners convergence partners which of course is um a huge investor uh, well hugely invested in ccom for example and a south african um, private equity business uh they're also in partnership with the international finance corporation which is a member of the world bank and then mitsui which is uh an infrastructure trading company um, they, yes, they're all responsible, for, or at least in part, for the hundred million that they just landed in. Back to my question: Like, how do you feel about Google spearheading what's now the most, or, or what's becoming a, a pretty substantial uh, infrastructure play within the fiber landscape in East Africa? How do you feel about that? It, something about it doesn't gel with me. I don't. I can't figure it out yet. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think, you know, it's always it's always tough, right? So it's kind of being the referee and the player and everybody at the same time, right? Um, so yeah, so it's 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 challenging. But I think if we come down to the lowest common denominator from a benefit perspective, um, number one, I suppose the to be uh, contrarian, if not them, who, right? I suppose is the first departure point. Liquid telecoms, blessed. I mean, look, if South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> he jumped on that one quick fast. I'm like, yeah, bro, let me <laughs> let me sort that out. Yeah, no, talk to you. So, yeah, I get it. Liquid Telecoms and all those guys, but I think they're facing very different. There's there's levels to this thing, right? I think they're facing very different challenges. If you look at the the the, the, the balance sheet, the level of business maturity, the development of both business models, Liquid Telecoms couldn't execute this to the same degree. And of course, Google's got this vested interest. Of course, that I suppose makes them suitably motivated to execute really well on this their business requires more and more people to, or as many people as possible to to be on the internet <laughs> and yeah this is right this is playing to the to to their to that need like in a big way yeah and and i think speed you know execution um ultimately how long would it take for this kind of thing to be done by anybody else but a person but a company like google is, is important to consider secondly I don't think, you know, what gives me kind of a little bit of hope is that I don't think it's necessarily the notion of them being the referee and the player that, that is bothering. The notion of they should be educated and well-versed individuals that are pretty much stakeholders in this process that are guarding the interests of the consumer and of the of, of the Kenyan uh, community. Um, so I think that is more of the issue than them being the referee and the player, right? Um, because ultimately, we all know that they're doing something that is going to benefit African users. It's saying we're driving down costs, we're giving access 
access and i don't think we can we can argue on that what we are arguing about is that you own the pipeline and you own what's going through it therefore is there not an opportunity for you to start uh, manipulating or misusing that position of power yes potentially but then again shouldn't that be a stakeholder conversation a la rwanda um to try and make sure that google plays according to the rules that have the ultimate benefit for the kenyan citizen so i think that's more of the more of the argument for me anyway um than whether they should or shouldn't be doing it that's true. I totally take your point. And, and, and to their credit, as of, you know, the last few weeks, uh, Kampala, Entebbe, uh, Accra, Tema, Kumasi have all reportedly benefited from something like 840 kilometers of fiber that's been laid. Um, that's just between Uganda and Ghana. Um, C-Squared is claiming that uh, over 25 ISPs and MNOs use their infrastructure. So saying that they're an agnostic platform is is pretty much being validated by that fact. And then they go as far as saying, well, 1,200,000 commercial buildings have been connected as a result, which... I mean, can't be faulted, surely. No, that's a big deal. So if you look at that purely from the perspective of the ultimate beneficiary in the short term, um, you cannot dispute that what they're doing is, is, is a good thing. But once again, I think the conversation from stakeholders and government peeps um, needs to be ensuring that uh, you know the right stop gaps and or uh, policy regulation is in place to make sure that that is not misused in the long term from a power perspective. Honestly, and I mean, we'll talk about Facebook later when we talk international news, but I do think um, our regulators need to catch a wake up. And by that, I don't mean they need to start uh, preempting every technological innovation and, and, and basically stimming progress by in, in so doing. But I certainly do think they need to wake up to what clearly other parts of the world are waking up to in terms of the incredible dominance that we're practically handing to companies like Facebook and Google and, and these guys um, basically by not making sure our interests are in lockdown uh, before they move in. I mean, I'm not saying let's not work with them. Or I'm not saying let's push them out and, and only local firms should do it. I just think if they come, then it needs to be on our terms for our benefit. Yeah, I think, you know, my, my experience has been that, you know, businesses like Facebook and Google are, are investing in having internal resources that try and understand uh, kind of the landscape when it comes to policy and regulation. So I think that that's happening. Uh, but I do think there is a job um, on the part of governments in, in many African countries to to, to not be uh, complete blockers of progress, right? I think that it requires someone who is progressive to understand the key challenges, but also um, someone who is, in inverted commas, conservative to you know to to maintain and to to respect the laws of the country and the consumer. Um, and I think finding that balance is quite difficult because often the government position is quite extreme in the sense that they're trying to say no to everything, um, whereas kind of these businesses come and they're quite progressive and they try to say open up and make it and I think somewhere in the middle is where the magic needs to happen but often um, I think the people that can have those conversations on the side of government um, aren't necessarily adequately skilled to understand implications across some of these decisions and as I said it's an opinion but uh, if we can have that kind of discussion happening with that level of knowledge and insight on reciprocal sides um, I think then the, the discussion and the agreements will be more progressive you just I hadn't thought of it in terms of that spectrum you've just described on one hand you've got huge big tech multinationals who are like bullish on innovation and not just because they're trying to change the world which i suppose if someone like mark zuckerberg's believed yes he cares about those things too but they are these huge corporate behemoths that have their reasons why they'd like to see us all progress quote-unquote progress technologically on one hand you have that on the other hand you have government leadership policymakers, lawmakers who also, unfortunately, not always driven by 
altruistic motives or a sense of duty or anything like that um and and often see themselves uh under threat by by the the coming you know future that is likely to make them far more accountable than they ever have been in history and then there's somewhere in the middle where we all need to be and that's where we all benefit. I hadn't th- thought of it like that, you see? And um, I don't know if you were thinking at listeners while he was speaking and he was talking about, we need people like this, we need people like that. Well, I'm thinking in terms of Musa for president. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to that. Yeah, vote for me. Let's, t- let, let's see who's crazy enough to vote for a Zambian boy living in South Africa to be president. Really? <laughs> Musa for president. <laughs> love it, Andile. Love it. You heard it here first. Uh, if you, if you, you know, I'm saying it for those of you who thought it, and I thought it, and now I'm saying it out loud. Anyway, uh, moving swiftly along, folks. Um, following the footsteps of Hertzner, uh, Terraco, the likes of IBM, well, Microsoft has finally come to the party in terms of announcing big data centers uh, to be built on the African continent. They'll be starting in Johannesburg and in Cape Town. Uh, this according to the executive vice president of their cloud and enterprise business, uh, Scott Guthrie. Pretty exciting news, I think. Absolutely. This is big, 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 big. Um, the two facilities are expected to be online by 2018. Um, and obviously, Microsoft are heavily investing in the developing world and trying to develop this kind of Africa cloud infrastructure, which I think is super. If you think about kind of a lot of the data centers, in fact, all of the data centers for these big companies are generally not on the African continent. So we're rerouting traffic through wherever it may be, whether it's Estonia, whether it's the US, and it's coming all the way back. Um, there are obviously consumer implications, but I think there's also huge economic benefit to being able to bring some of these skills around um, developing the actual data center, which is uh, resources and people that need to build these things. Um, then the long tail, as far as people that need to be um, in those data centers, operating them, making sure that they're going on and, and, and working well. Um, I think it's a great signal and a great uh, a great initiative from, from, from Microsoft. What I also would like to see, you know, I mean, I think they're obviously starting in Joburg, um, as far as implementation is concerned, is if they have plans further than that. So, I mean, if you if you consider the Africa landscape as, as four blocks, Northeast, West Africa, um, what has not been uh, clear is whether their kind of data center expansion is going to end kind of in uh, in Joburg and Cape Town, or whether they're going to be expanding you know further um, east, west, and north, which also should be an interesting thing to consider. That's a really good question. What I do know for sure is that this is a business decision on, that no doubt plays very heavily uh, in favor of the the businesses they're pushing in in as far as their cloud business is concerned. Uh, I think of Microsoft Azure. Um, Office 365, Dynamics 365. Actually, quite interesting how often Microsoft Azure came up uh, at the conference I attended in London, given there weren't even major sponsors or anything. So there's definitely this trend towards um, uh, trying to bring as as much of corporate online in terms of digital integration as far as cloud is concerned, but also a trend towards what's called fog. This idea that uh, in as much as you know, there's cloud on one side and there's centralized computing on the other. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole sort of new uh, area in the middle that's going to be big because of IoT, where computing is going to need to happen, you know, closer to the edge and and all the way, you know, to, towards the organization. And 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 so I think uh, I see sort of these data centers as part of a trend in that direction, or an or an anticipation of a trend where you know IoT takes hold, cloud is adopted more, but there's going to be computing required. Uh, right at the edge as well as uh, you know 
at the center as well and of course much closer to home at much higher speeds with less latency and so on yeah and i think it's worth noting that um and apparently the decision to build the two data centers is uh is considerable however it seems like they're going to be co-locating in the beginning right so there'll be existing facilities that they're going to co-locate with but what i think would be an even better um, investment is actual building of the infrastructure from the ground up so that we can get uh, um, ultimately the money circulating um, as much as possible further down the value chain for 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 whether it's jobs um, whether it's skills development etc etc but um, yeah microsoft big up yeah welcome to africa as it turns out and here's one of our homegrown um also you know, investing in the area of broadband. It's CECOM, and they're planning to invest in infrastructure growth uh, on the continent uh, to, to, you know, keep up with the increasing data needs of the continent. Now, of course, this is business as usual for them. This is the, they, they're an undersea cable company. They exist for the sole purpose of, <laughs> of enabling connection or improving connection on the continent, certainly. But they've been bringing more and more points of presence online. Uh, I mean, we, we spoke about on the show here that, you know, uh, last year, the one in Kigali, and now more, more recently, a point of presence in Haberone, uh, Botswana as well. Their CEO, Byron Clatterbuck, has, you know, come out saying that, you know, we should definitely look out for them to to invest more heavily in the coming year or two. I'm interested that they've uh, put a point of presence in Haberone. That's quite uh, um, different. Uh, unexpected. It'd be interesting to see the data points that inform that decision, you know. I'd, it'd be interesting to know, are they thinking botswana as a new hub for the southern african region or what yeah i don't know i think it's quite uh as i said it, um, peculiar is probably the wrong word but probably interesting but um given the strategy that they followed uh, up until now with you know continued growth especially with the over-the-top players um uh, botswana is a small economy um maybe positioned in such a way that they can get predictability around you know the economy and growth in their business but it'll be interesting to try and get more feedback on on that and how that rolls out but ultimately as you said um as they roll out throughout the you know throughout their uh their, their regions of interest um i think they're going to have more plans that are going to be in the pipeline to do um upgrades i think primarily fueled by the video consumption um you know that's going to be happening through on on, on demand or demand side platforms so can I put my conspiracy cap on? Please do. So we know that Botswana is a huge U.S. ally. In fact, I believe that in the Southern African region, there's probably more, and I stand to be correct here. This is like, but from what I understand, they're, they're a key U.S. ally, and there may even be troops on the ground or base or something out there. You know, that's what I've heard. And it'd be interesting to know if this had any correlation with Botswana's friendliness with the U.S. and the context in which perhaps uh, cybercrime and cybersecurity is becoming a global issue. Uh, and perhaps in the region, it might suit said global partner to have traffic channels through a friendly country. QX-Files music. <laughs> I think that's definitely a conspiracy theory. And then the people at CECOM are like rolling their eyes. They're like... <laughs> They're like, what are these two on about? I mean, really, it's like cheap to be in Botswana. <laughs> Come on, dude. Like, what is wrong with you people? Can you just not be happy that Botswana have a point of presence? Yeah, no, sure. Big up. As I said, I think it's peculiar, but uh, we've got our theories. Maybe you know more. So Maybe you know more. And listen, if we answer something or not, or if you're just really just excited that Botswana has a point of presence, or um, or maybe you have thoughts on where CECOM should be focusing their efforts next, yeah. give us a shout, man, at African Roundup on Twitter. What's that? Seacom Gate. <laughs> 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 dum, dum, dum. <laughs>
started right here. <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. That'd be fake news. But um, no, no, no. But it'd be interesting. I, I, I don't know. But am I even onto something in terms of how those sort of agendas are set in terms of determining Kigali is a good place or you know Botswana next? I mean, what goes into that? That'd be an interesting conversation to have with the folks at CECOM in terms of dis- determining what the most sensible next step is for them in terms of growth. Yeah, it could have been a geopolitical decision, right? So uh, can we stay close to South Africa, which is the hub, but can we not be in South Africa, given you know the nature of what's been happening? Um, downgrades, political instability. Maybe it's, maybe it's geopolitics. You, know, you never know. But um, Interesting nonetheless, yeah, because there's another angle. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So hopefully we can get some insight on that. <laughs> yeah, you're our community, guys. You are our eyes and, and ears on the ground. Let us know if we're if you know anything we don't. So this trend towards solar energy uh, in East Africa, again, East Africa seems to be leading innovation in the mobile money scene. And I certainly sense that they're leading innovation in as far as um, solar-powered electrification is is on the board, at least at a micro level. And case in point, um, the off-grid solar startup B-Box, that's double B, double X. Now they, they... they're scaling up on the continent and essentially using that MCOPA model. We've had um, for the folks on MCOPA on the show explaining the, their model and how, look, on the surface, it's that whole McDonald's situation where we're selling burgers up here, but really we're, we're, a, we're a real estate business. In the case of MCOPA and in, in the case of B-Box up here, we're sort of elect- electrifying, you know, uh, you know, off the grid homes up here. But really what we're doing is we are a credit, we're essentially a credit business um, and we're we're basically banking people. We're helping people develop a credit history and helping them access credit to light up their homes and hopefully um, do other things later on down the line. Who knows? These are possibly individuals we could sell into the banking system, and 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 and, and so on and so forth. So really, this is what's fueling this surface sort of altruistic idea of hey, let's help light up Africa. In the case of Bbox, it's 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 a business that has tons of traction. And yeah, they have a unique model in that the total installation price for a basic unit with them is like a hundred US dollars and the customer pays off six dollars per month over three years. Um but here's here's the catch. That battery comes with monitoring. Now what they've worked into into this technology uh, over time. I think they're now at like a fourth iteration or something like that. Um, they've worked out how to, at relatively low cost, monitor the, the, the use of, oh my word, he's here. Come, come. Oh my word. And we're talking East Africa, bruh. Nice, nice, nice. We have Mark Kaigua in the building, nice. people. What's happening, everybody? What's happening, Africa? Speak to the people, because we've, 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 we didn't tell them who would be coming. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, it's great to be here, man. You know, yeah, A uh, couple of things to sort out. Uh, this this Josie Johannes by running around life, but uh, great to be here. My guy, we've been telling people that um, easily the most well-connected person in, in Kenya, easily the, the leading digital head in East Africa is on our way, and they're like, who, who? We're like, yes. <laughs> Good one, man. I appreciate the compliments. It's uh, always just trying to pay it forward, you know, making making a way for for anybody else. Um, and yeah, there's no better place to do it, no better stage to be on than the this uh, cashmere draped recording studio here, 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 here in Santon. You know, <laughs> the podcast doesn't play. <laughs> I do not know about cashmere, but we try. <laughs> Yeah, so um, yeah, was, come, come, come yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'll need to. Okay, so, 
so you basically with we're discussing b-box um and uh, I just led with, uh, I just introed with how they're similar to Mcorpa and how, on the surface, it's it's essentially a business that's altruistically trying to light up East Africa and the rest of the continent, uh, but just under the surface, really, they're a finance business, right? And I was just explaining to our listeners now that they've worked in in their fourth sort of generation uh, products. They've worked in monitoring that allows them, essentially the Internet of Things, really, that that sort of um, broadcast signal into the cloud that allows them to monitor usage and switch it off if necessary. If people, for whatever reason, don't pay up, um, they they now have the ability to switch off those lights and obviously manage their risk in that regard, Mm. Uh, but also just get a ton of great data that they can crunch and presumably used to to develop more credit products right what what's the real vibe around these businesses in kenya right or in, in east africa in your experience most of them this one included are founded by expats uh usually mbas cambridge guys Oct- i think in the case of this business the folks might have been i think they're from cambridge in the case of from copa the guys met at oxford and they you know and so uh, what's the sense in the terms of like the commu- in terms of impact and also what's the sense in terms of what people feel these guys are here to do on the continent yeah i think uh start with the first question um there is a great sense that data that was previously untapped meaning that the telcos collected it and because of mobile money, they, they effectively sat on it, not necessarily creating new products and services. The fact that people can plug in at the source that way, I think is huge. And that opens up this idea of credit and just that the fact that you can look at the aspirations of, of households and of people and just know that you can start to serve them with um essentially repayment plans that are tailor-made based off of their, their data footprint and their ability to um, to qualify for one. And so even I, I was giving a talk here in Joburg the, the, uh, yesterday and just talking, you know, one of the footnotes was how, you know, the IP address now is also a factor in determining um, your credit worthiness, right? And, you know, if we know where you are between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m., then we can assign some kind of socioeconomic value to to rent and where this this part of the, the city is and, and just associate one of now it's many other touch points to the second more controversial point <laughs> <laughs> yes and we, we're yeah. getting you on you fresh bro uh, you know it's like you guys don't uh, anyway guys 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 listening know uh know that andile <laughs> comes out singing hey man listen we gotta keep it real though we gotta keep it real because um we don't shy away from tell from saying when people do a good job on the show yeah. But also, there's just conversations that are never had. There's a certain rigor to to discourse that's just not that's just lacking. We're not trying to, you know, we're not here to take down anything. But we're here to like listen. There's, this is worth talking about. Like, are, are people is the is the impact? Does it match the the value of the data that you're surrendering when you? Okay, do you see now? I'm now I'm leading now, and I don't want to lead. I want to know the truth. Yeah, let me know. Give me a sense. Give me a sense what it's like, bruh. I think I think I think I'm gonna point to a few things. The first of which was a, a very interesting chart that's done by that was done by Quartz last year. So you know they have that Atlas tool, it's atlas.qz.com, where you can find all these charts and graphs that have been done by the guys and the journalists writing there, and they cite their sources. So they were looking at the biggest deals that are, it is either last year or the year before the biggest deals in terms of uh, essentially the the size of the funding round 
and there were if from what i understand uh, i may be wrong here i believe there's only like one if not none uh those businesses that had a senior kenyan founding partner or a kenyan in the uh c-suite well not c-suite but but at a founding um level so it's you know it said something now that's what the data says there is something that has really given me life in this debate because it's very easy for us to um kind of read it at a surface level but there's there's bigger factors at play meaning that village capital who are a great organization with some interesting aspirations to how they try and fight their own biases to fund for instance you know expats and so on and so forth the, they they just published a study where they talked about how pattern recognition on the vc side uh, factors in and if they don't if if people aren't aware they'll go on lo- a long time assuming that uh, africa doesn't have necessarily like like you know homegrown uh, fundable uh, ventures now there's there's clear systematic challenges you know from due diligence to pipeline i'm not going to get into the the weeds but what they actually recognized in this village capital study um is is that i think it was done with the aspen institute as well they found that you know people are using these proxies which are the western or you know the outside way of 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 evaluating someone so which school did you go to if i hear school i know oh it's like oh tufts just like me or like just like my brother or my cousin or it's like oh it's like mit or so so they're looking for those kinds of validators and you're going to find that from a finite pool likely who've not necessarily come from uh from the ground so it leads to uh unfortunately just them seeking out the wrong patterns and signals which the data now substantiates in saying that um that local founders don't seem to be able to raise and i and i you know even i'm in a uh, a whatsapp group with um with largely the some major players in the tech ecosystem <laughs> i'm a luck on that group because i know people <laughs> who uh you know i don't say that much but i said something the other day um and i think it was maybe a year and a half ago a year ago that someone did a study and they were asking about you know it, it's come up a few times this say this at the heart of this question and they were just asking hey you know what we seem to see a pattern here. Can we, can we, can we get to the heart of it? And, um, you know, it, it ruffled feathers because, you know, you got strong opinions in there. You got people who are leading in their own right. People who've been turned down by some of that VC money, which went to, um, you know, I'm not going to get into the details, but well, uh, let's talk about some of that no, VC no, money. No 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 no, 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 wait, 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 wait. I'm yes, no, no, no. But let's, let's give, let's give the people a sense of what kind of VC money we're talking in the in the case of Bbox, right? We we can. I mean, M Corp has been covered to death. They've got a ton of cash themselves. Yeah. Um, but let me look here because I've got the number of of what they've landed to date. In Bbox's case, we're talking forty million US dollars to date, uh, and that includes money from the likes of the, the French energy giant uh, Engie. Yeah. Hey, look. You know, if if somebody's got inroads that way, I mean, I've heard it put another way of if you if you do match some of those signals that people. At times, VCs are looking for in terms of you know the school, some qualifying things. It's your ex Google, your ex this, your ex that. But execution too, it has exactly. to be. No, it it comes squarely down to that. But what they're also looking for is those external networks. So people, for instance, who flown in and come to Kenya, um, can aggressively start to develop a Kenya network. But all you know, they will they'll look back home for for the 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 real. At times, the, at least the data would would suggest that they that they find. 
um, the ability to close deals coming more from support back where they're from, you know, from that school, from that university, uh, from friends and family. So they end up having almost two sets of social networks to tap into. Uh, and, and, you know, you could, you could argue the other way that, that perhaps folks on the ground who are, you know, busy in execution mode, um, have only one of those. Now I'll never make excuses for anybody. And I think that, um, there's a lot of people here who've either been turned down and ended up doing great or, um, who've just been able to do a lot with a little, who would still sit here and tell any local founder that, hey, you know, your grind is what's going to get you somewhere. Now that said, you know, money buys time and time is, you know, really what many startups are, are battling against, you know, just to deliver, to ship. And, um, and it'd be great to just see, I mean, what I'd actually recommend, there's a very detailed study. I think um, the study I'm mentioning, I will literally look it up just now, but it it, it's, it looked at, I think, over 4,000 applications to, to this accelerator. And the way that Village Capital say that they fight, they, they battle against those cognitive biases, which they understand that they're susceptible to, which is important that they would recognize and, and know that, hey, if it's up to us, we will fall victim to these same sets of biases, is that they actually have entrepreneurs in their network validate the next people to get funded. So it's not just down to this, you know, investment committee or this this kind of approach where people are, you know, if you don't resonate with them at that personal level or even at the books level or, or you don't click, it's down to literally the people they've already funded who are local, who are invested locally, and those people have equal, if not bigger, say um, in the investment decisions they make, which is important. Mark, is this a classic case of impact investments in your mind? Oh man, you guys are like you guys are come out singing. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I think that look, if you're talking energy, if you're talking credit, if you're talking um, people underrepresented or un, un, underserved in the financial ecosystem. I, I've heard it put another way, and I wish I could cite the source that that almost anything you do here has impact because there's, I mean, you know, call call someone a capitalist or you like this, and unless, look, I mean, if they're raising cash and they're solving a problem here, it's it's hard to actually separate that from from uh, from um, from social or um, or at least societal impact. And, and perhaps that's actually more true the further inland in, in Africa you go because there are some fundamental structural things I'm missing. I've been riding around with my Uber guys these last couple of days um, and just uh, just marveling, you know, at, at just trying to notice, really notice what infrastructure is as a common denominator, which a lot of people riding in cars, you just will take for granted. The roads are as such, the connectivity is, you know, is this way. We are, I think, two minutes away from the how train. So there's, there's, there's an element of, you could be ruthlessly capitalist here and you know it wouldn't matter as much because you're like despite your your success again i'm not speaking definitively uh but you could kind of make and 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 keep that whereas i think the further up 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 you go um on the continent you end up solving all sorts of problems you didn't set out to solve i was looking at something about the the lake uh turkana wind project these guys and again they are from overseas i'll recognize that but these guys i think had to build something like you know, 230 kilometers of road. And it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's sub-Saharan Africa's largest wind farm. Um, and Google's got a stake in it. It's a massive deal for them. And so do a, a number of other players. So they couldn't, you know, you want to do the deal, but there's a whole lot of residual societal impact you're going to have to um, either directly address or hopefully... Uh, so I, I don't, you know, I think people have assigned some... Um, I think the word impact investment registers with people so differently because some have argued, I know that Buana Ali of Savannah Fund has argued his case of how um, money from the, the development sector, which he would qualify under that, that, that blanket of 
of impact investment actually sets the wrong expectations for entrepreneurs in terms of really, really them, them actually just really uh, watching the business live or die by the sword, by the marketplace, by execution in that if you can secure some grants, of course, those grants are great. They buy time and that time and that money allows growth, validation, proof of concept and so on. So but I'm actually curious when, when Musa, you said impact, does impact register as almost, uh, does it almost have a negative connotation in the context of what you know is required for a startup to, to work or, and I'm, and I'm, I don't want to answer my, my own question. <laughs> what, what, when you asked that question, were you asking in terms of impact being an amazing thing to aspire towards? Yeah, I, I, I was asking it in that context because I think uh, you know, part of Mark, what Marcus has said is, is quite true for our context, is that by its very nature, because of the kind of problems that we're trying to solve here in Africa, is that most of the things that you're going to do are going to end up having some kind of societal impact, right? But for someone that is putting money into the country, that may not register as, as, as the same thing. So someone investing from the U.S. into Africa may be considering impact in, from, a, from, a, from a purely business transaction, while as we're sitting here and we're saying impact actually means you have to be able to drive change fundamentally at society before you make money, which means five or ten years down the line, you may have lost everything that you've invested, but you've actually improved the lives of the people that you're trying to change, um, which is a different agenda to someone that is investing from outside. Um, and I think because of our unique circumstances, we, you know, and I call it, you know, the way Aleko Dangote has, you know, built his fortune is that, as, as, as Mark was saying, you're trying to solve one problem, and along the line, you realize that you actually have to build the value chain to realize the full value in the end of the process, right? And, and entrepreneurs that are not thinking in that way are not going to fully be able to realize that whereas you know impact investors potentially coming into our environment know that fundamentally in order for you to realize the value at the end the investment that you need to make along the way needs to actually speak to the to the rest of the the value chain so that was the context for me it is completely positive in inverted commas but once again speaking from a position of being in the continent versus someone being out of the continent the views might be different so here's the thing right my uh, what grates me is what's starting to feel like a disingenuity, disingenuity, a lyingness, a lyingness. <laughs> 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 I like that. It's not my first language, folks. So, no, there, there seems to be big business understanding what's, what drives their commercial agenda. And then knowing what they think they need to say in terms of like selling the the sort of um, residual benefits of what they're pursuing as sort of the main thing, right? So case in point, this is not a let's light up Africa and make it a better place business. This is a finance business, right? And I don't know that the average person who buys a light from these guys, a TV system, pays it off over all these years, is onto that, is aware of that. Is that an issue or not? Maybe that's another debate altogether. But I mean, how about, I was at an IoT conference, right, Mark? Uh, I was at the IoT World Forum this, um, you know, this past week. And my goodness, the amount of time the likes of Cisco, IBM, and uh, Rockwell are spending in terms of, look how our IoT solutions are helping make you know reduce accidents in the fog or or you know what i mean prevent drone accidents in dubai or to get them guys the truth is the, and and it, and they did get to it in in other parts of the conference of course so it's not as though they pretended that there isn't any money to be made and there isn't a commercial agenda but what i what i do know is that in the in the sort of popular domain and the sort of consumer domain in in the in the domain of where most of the average people who care about tech news go and get their news 
it's sold as this sort of light up Africa or give water to Africa or let, you know what I mean? Or keep Africans safe or let you, whatever the thing is. And we never get to discussing to the disservice of our ecosystem and to people grappling with the business issues. We never discuss the commercial thing. You know what I mean? I don't know if you guys get me. Yeah, look, I think there's the, the, another way to look at it potentially, Andile, is that I believe that any technology business that's trying to solve problems in Africa has to be giving back more than they, they're taking out, right? And that could be a, a position in the short term. The commercial argument is over the long term that has to equalize at some point, right? So you're coming in, as you said, under the guise of a electrif- electrifying business that's there to kind of light up Africa, yay. Um, in the long term, we know that you're building a business around credit so that you can be able to lend money to those very people that you light up, lit up um, and potentially get them into a, 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 a dead negative situation. So <laughs> That's horrible. That's horrible. They're probably cringing listening to this. Oh, man. Well, we're here to call a spade a spade, right? Um, but, but the view is, you know, is the quantum of the problem that you're solving um, big enough such that it justifies the outtake that you're going to have in the long run right that's and i don't know whether that's an ethical argument or whether it's a business argument or whether it's okay because i'm actually solving a big problem i mean can you argue you know by electrifying you know by selling fifty thousand units or whatever it may be um you know to that many homes how many people are you getting through school how many times how many lives of babies are you saving how many you know so there's that whole aspect and can you solidly say that there's something wrong with that? And that was my actually at the heart of the question I asked initially, which is, tell me that Kenyans are loving this. Tell me that East Africans are going. This is giving us such value, and uh, so such that the impact, as you say, at least marries with what they're giving up to essentially enrich expats. I, I wouldn't go, I don't know if, I, if I'd speak as boldly as that, but I appreciate the fact that, you know, it's an honest conversation and we're having it. I think what I, the way I see it is that, you know, we've got to look at it at, at that form of capital flight and so on. I mean, if people are genuinely invested and, and, they, and they follow through on and are able to, to quantifiably show, I mean, one of the things I would love to see here is one of these um, uh, social or impact-based either funds or a portfolio company aspire to have the kind of openness that uh, a social media company based out of the U.S. called Buffer does. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's true. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, Buffers, I'm a huge fan of them. Yeah, because you know, like if you pay a $10 a month subscription, it's like, you know, 7% to salary, it's like 10% to servers and so on. Like they are a radically transparent company. And this is the place to lead with that. Like I would love to see somebody take the conversation to there to disclose. I mean, Buffer goes as far as like everyone's stock compensation. This is the formula we have. Um, and they've become a thought leader and a much respected company because of that. And they've lived their lives out in, op- in the open. And here, I, I want to even argue, like, what do people have to lose to try that? Um, on top of that, I think that the other darker side of the impact discussion, which has been criticized by others before me, is that there is uh, sometimes a dissonance between the commercial objectives and the the, uh, the societal or impact objectives. So, you know, we wrote your grant of $150,000 or $50,000 and that entitles us to some say as to, hey, here's a commercial, commercially viable opportunity that you have every right to pursue. Uh, of course, it has those residual benefits that are tied in to the, to the problem or married to the problem. But, you know, it'll look better for our donors and our, you know, where we and the foundations that support us or the people that are are working with us if we approach it you know this way so for me i i i mean i i at the end of the day i would i would much rather have um 
like what I'm glad about again, and I and I'm not trying to like you know beat their drum for them. It's the I'm just glad that somebody has both put forward a solution, talked about how they do it, and recognized the the problem based off of data as well as as well as opinion. Because you know seeing the that chart from um from from quotes right from and it and it spoke so much right because everybody kind of sits back and says hmm. And uh, and then as I said in the Kenyan tech ecosystem in that in that WhatsApp group guys did a study and I mean I, I I hate to butcher the findings but it was just more of you know if you have a founder uh, from overseas it does help your chances at raising uh, you know a high potentially I mean we don't have a fixed kind of control group and a sample like we can't empirically boil it down to that but there certainly was- yes we can like how many people how many. How many times have you have you do you personally know that the fact that a founder was a you know an an, an, uh, an Ivy League alumnus uh, how, how look I mean it's not scientific I guess it's more anecdotal to be fair but I mean it it is a reality I'm not sitting here defending anybody I think you know and I I don't think anybody wants a defense I think what I like is that we we can narrow it down to systematic you know. Um, and a systematic approach to judgment. I think there's a case to be made for, you know, people asking, well, well, who, you know, how, how, you know, the, let's say the 10 of us as funds, uh, all, all have faced this challenge and we want to do more. Um, but we compete with one another out in the Bay and everywhere else. Can we, can we consolidate the fact that we share a mutual problem here and even innovate from within, from on the, I guess on the, on the supply side, you know, of, of the, of the discussion. I think there's a big conversation to be had here, and I'm going to throw another spanner in the works. So no, <laughs> and I th- Go ahead, man. I think it's an important thing for us to, to conversate about, and I've often said quite controversially that um, these inflows of VC funding, in my view, sometimes amount to nothing more than more slicker, more sexier foreign aid. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, so and, and I think that's, you know, the, the concepts and the principles about transparency and how, once again, um, not only the, e- the ecosystem, but also stakeholders outside of the ecosystem, like governments, et cetera, et cetera, can potentially come to the fore with levers and or ways to manage the fact that this is going to end up being another form of, of, of foreign aid. It's going to be another crutch. The outflow is ultimately not going to stay in the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a huge question around literally standing up those two financing methodologies and saying foreign aid, VC capital, <laughs> What is happening? You know, because I think we're going to be surprised at the similarity in terms of even the qualifying conditions. Um, if you look at people that set up foreign aid um, organizations in the last couple of years, they had to be Ivy League. They had to, you know, there's a, there's a stark amount of similarity in those two, um, you know, financing regimes. And I think if that is the case, then are we really just taking one step forward, two steps back? That's an amazing segue into some into a story that we we kind of left out waiting for you to talk about. I mean, the issue around impesas impending interoperability. Okay, number one. Number two, we did talk about, while you weren't here, we did talk about Google's uh, uh, fiber project, uh, C-squared. And in the context of everything you've just said, you know, what are some of the, some of the th- sub-themes, the geopolitical issues, the sort of uh, sovereignty issues, the sort of uh, public interest issues that are at play when you think of, hey, um, what does M-Pesa, for example, being interoperable mean? What are the implications of letting Google have a substantial uh, stake in you know, East Africa's, uh, you know, un- you know, un- underground fiber network, you know. So w- what do you make of all of this, homie? Let maybe start with, with M-Pesa's interoperability. Give me a sense of how excited Kenya is for that notion, at that notion, and, and link it to this discussion. 
Yeah, I think let, let's 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 look back a little bit. So this year is the first time that all non-voice um, lines of revenue for for Safaricom have so the scales have tipped, right? We know that voice revenue is going to decrease over time, and this is the first uh, year if you go by Safaricom's earnings where they are now earning more from M-Pesa, from data, from SMS, and other auxiliary services than they are from voice. So huge in that respect. I think M-Pesa sits at 27% of their revenue. Now, there's not a lot of examples we can use to to assess what Safaricom's move might be, but the one that's coming to mind for me is uh, mobile number portability and how Safaricom acted in the face of that. Resisted for a long time, did not have a... Um, you know, really just, just just try to battle that. Same with perhaps even like Equitel and them getting their, their you know, mobile virtual network operators license and going on to do thin SIM um, cards. So they, 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 they've got lawyers and those lawyers stay busy. Um, and they, and of course they've got, they've got quants and people who are predicting and factoring things into their models to anticipate what it means. The challenge I feel is that this will, this will not have as big of an impact as, I, I feel like the impact is not down to Safaricom or what they do. It's squarely down to the competition and how well they take advantage of it. So you do have other players in the market. Um, this would be a brilliant opportunity for them to step up. I hope they've been spending months, hopefully years, you know, predicting and, and starting the R&D for what would it mean if this was the case, that, that, that the phone number doesn't matter, interoperability is there, that I can send Airtel money, Orange money, you know, Tangaza is another one of the players, that, 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 that just that was there. So, But am I right in sensing that there might be, their hand might be forced by the headwinds around the government or at least voices within lawmaking going, hey, Safaricom should be, at, uh, Safaricom and M-Pesa should be separate businesses. I, I kind of sense that maybe people are looking into deeper issues like, is this a, a quasi-disenfranchisement situation where really we're losing touch with the most valuable commercial database we've ever had? We're essentially empowering a, a whole new financial dispensation that we we don't have any power over as a government or as a, as a public. Are those issues at all, or is this just Andile sort of, postulating from his marxist corner <laughs> i i think i think you've got points and there's 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 something to be said for that i would want to argue otherwise and just say that i i i just hold it one i don't think that the split between safaricom and pesa will happen um just my personal opinion and then the and, and there's something that i heard said on safaricom uh by someone um who works there that shall remain unnamed because of the forum. Uh, but, but yeah, it was, it was how if, if Safaricom was a Nigerian company, the, the focus would be get them into like another three, four, five markets and, you know, let them be um, this, like, like this unicorn. Whereas in Kenya, you know, you're the, I think it's like, you know, I don't know if it's seven, $8 billion um, uh, uh, giant or however big, you know, it is. And, uh, and there it's a matter of split it, you know, chop it off at the knees too, you know, far too, uh, too strong. Are you guys like strong on the hitter aid? It's, it's definitely there. I mean, they're, they're the easiest people to pick on. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think that there's a case to be made either way. I just like that, the, that, you know, the fact that it was, it was a central question around our ambition and is our ambition to cut them back down to size or to see them kind of 
rise and spread wings. And you know, this is one thing even that that uh, um, VCs and and that uh, that 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 side of the funding table have said in the past, which is, you know, how ambitious are you? Is it is it you know, I'm, hey, I'm trying to be the biggest in Joburg not big enough i'm trying to be the biggest in Houteng province not big enough i'm trying to be the biggest in in uh you know in, in in south africa well now we're talking about what else you know what else could you put on the table and part of the language of for you know that that could be argued that that um that people traveling in might see is they might they might have a potentially um it's hard for me to say like like you know locket stock like they, they're all like this but it's just it's just the question of are we ambitious enough? And in the case of Safaricom, what I'd say is I, I don't expect, I mean, it's just like the, the only thing, and I don't know if you guys spoke about this on a previous podcast, the thing of, of great concern to me is still the outage of M-Pesa and the answers that that left uh, on, on the table. So if you have your redundancy go down as well, um, that's when we realize how, how much we depend on this thing. That's when people who were sitting in a cab got to their destination, said they couldn't pay, and people are like, wait, what? I mean, I heard of stories of people, you know, taking out the, the battery, the SIM card from the phone, like, because they were like, it couldn't be M-Pesa, it's me. I'm the problem here, because that's the level of trust that was there. So when you have something that is powering government services, I mean, a blackout of, you know, an hour, you know, people, people, wa- serious economic implications yeah, on that and 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 uh and and for me it's it's resolving those questions in an open and transparent way to the extent that that legal will allow them because they probably will say no but yeah I, I would look at it as as this bigger picture of centered on ambition and just the question on i don't see i i i don't see people fighting the case for them to be bigger but i also see them you know really consolidating their position they're, they're not they're not they're not ready to do anybody any favors this is a reluctant move towards interoperability which they're like yeah we'll grin and bear it but is there a competitor who can actually make us grin and bear it in the first place i don't i'm not sure i see that yet oh, I've, I've never quite understood how kenyans don't see past like who owns safaricom i mean it's it's totally kenyan but totally not right i could i could tell you why i think it's you know kenya I mean, and, uh, let me give you context, right? Cause, because we hadn't touched on this. Um, so basically, Vodacom, Vodafone subsidiary in South Africa, um, has now bought 87.5% of Vodafone Kenya, which effectu- effectively gives them a, a 34.9% uh, interest in Safaricom. Uh, yeah, even less Kenyan now. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you could argue, I, I actually saw it. I must, I must read this quote. It's from a. A story about M-Pesa, and uh, and it, it's going to drive you guys up the wall. Uh, Bring it! <laughs> uh, it's from a New York Times piece that talked about M-Pesa. Let me see here. It was squarely around the genesis of M-Pesa. So it says, M-Pesa is a, con- a commercial service, of course. It's by Tina Rosenberg in the New York Times. Uh, and she says that, but it couldn't have happened without foreign aid. What? <laughs> see? See? To your point, homie. <laughs> we told you. We told you. <laughs> I'm I'm getting to the kicker. The British aid agency fun, financed small early pilot projects and tested a mobile money service. They also gave Nick Hughes, the global head of payments, now the fo- founder of MCOPA, by the way, uh, at, um, a $1.3 million grant to develop the system, which Vodafone then matched. So Vodafone, UK government. And then here it is. It was one of the most successful foreign aid investments ever. So take that to the bank and you tell me, because does it, I mean, <laughs> you know, you can, you can walk to a Kenyan across the street. They don't, they don't care who came up with it, where it came from. They know the, I mean, they feel the difference in their pocket and in their SIM card. And, and there's a question there of, 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 um, I'm not going to say that I'm not going to throw in the towel and say, is this worth fighting for? But again, I'm, I'm just happy that 
this like this debate has not changed in the last three four years until finally somebody came studied about five thousand applications looked at all the challenges that 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 we've had and had a data-driven approach to saying let local entrepreneurs in our portfolio have just as much say in who comes and referring and in supporting and in fighting and battling the bias and because i see you know people we could have a panel at a conference we could talk about it we could actually bring the you know people who would they'd come prepared they'd have statements but you tell me how much is going to be done after that. And I think to see somebody who's actually attempting to do it, um, that and that's village I mean, capital. Yeah. Give them a shout yeah, out if it's yeah, you. Yeah. It's, it's village capital. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just showing, I'm just showing that love because let somebody else come out and tell me how they're battling it. And I hope it starts a conversation across the supply side, uh, that would give us a new angle of somebody saying, Hey, we recognize we have that bias. We could fall. V- I mean, we're no better than anybody else. But here's how we're going about it. Might not be perfect. Works for us. Let's see what you know anyone else in the market has to say. I think ultimately, you know, the, the optimist in me is going. Then what's the solution, right? So if we're saying that what is possibly touted to be the you know the, the, the cutting edge innovation of our generation, Mpesa, was funded by foreign aid, effectively. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? What more for the downstream products of all these incubators that are incubating for days and days, and all these innovations that are you know. So my my question is you know, once again, you know, where do we need to go um, to be able to get to a point? that we are yes one fundamentally where we agree we need to solve problems locally but we need to realize value in the short medium and long term and keep that value locked into our continent what is it that needs to happen you know because from a vc perspective you know people like 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 uh, the village uh, people village i was gonna say village. Not, not the village people village capital that, that would be a band <laughs> no i take that back village capital um but but where are we getting kind of a new generation of african investor that's going to understand the imperatives to solve the problem but it's going to be fundamentally obligated to keep that money in a context that's going to continue to drive growth because that's ultimately the long-term benefit of doing this whole thing um because that is the is where it's broken because because we're following exactly the the same route as foreign aid did, and foreign aid created lots of problems, which we're not going to get out. Maybe probably not even our generation. So you know, the, the, the optimist in me is going. Then what? What next? What is that thing that needs to happen? Where does the conversation need to shift to? How do we need to break that? Because I honestly believe in our generation, we're going to have to break that curse, if you want to call it a curse. But we're going to need to fix that. And I think driving the agenda and driving the conversation is one thing. Then hopefully one day we'll have the capital and balance sheets to actually drive the change that we need to. So. For me, it really starts on this podcast. In, in, in my small way, I feel that's a contribution. I just feel like our ecosystem is shrouded in in misinformation and underinformation. You know, and I know not all of it is deliberate. And I don't want to paint people in a bad light. To the credit of the folks at Impesa, at, at Mkopa, for example, I haven't spoken to the guys at Bbox. We've had them on the show. The you know. Um, we've had high, you know, some of the co-founders on this show and admitting that this is what we're doing. This is how we're going about it. This is our model. I just, I feel really like you say, it's on us to understand what the game is, right? This, this is not, let's not get carried away. Like some will want to at the conference I attended in London to be like, oh, wow. How cool is IoT? How cool is IBM for, you know, leveraging Watson and helping us, you know, you know, crunch all the world's problems and, and spit out solutions? Do you, you understand? Let's not get carried away by that and, and lose sight of where, you know, the, the, commercial, the commercialism lies in the context of all these things, right? And I'm saying commercialism not as some evil world, word, but as, as something that once you understand it, you can start to harness, you know, correctly, 
right? You can start to engage with VC. You you start to put a a, a value to your data. I mean, on one hand, you've got <clears throat> you've got big companies saying, "Listen, data is the new oil," right? On one hand, on the other hand, there's there's them basically wanting you to give it away for free and making you sign non and making you sign terms and conditions that give them rights to that content it's effectively giving them a right to a digital persona that you will never have a right to access and monetize even though you gave it you understand so on one hand you, it's it's like so that's why i'm saying there's a, almost like a sleight of hand going on and it's actually on us to start to understand and to educate our ecosystem as to listen when you do partner with a big scale company they're going to leverage they're going to sort of muscle you into leveraging access to data. If you're a regulation technology company, understand that there's no future for you if you don't have a play that somehow harnesses data and allows you to clean it and sell it to a third party. If the deal you're signing with this bank or whoever's you know, giving you this great opportunity to work with them blocks you from doing that, you're being hamstrung. You know, it's those kind of you know, it's those kind of data-driven discussions, truth-driven discussions, I feel contextual contextually i just used one example that we need to start to have so that co startup founders on the continent are empowered vcs or potential angel investors who are thinking of throwing money at a problem think about it the same way uh, an oxford mba does when he lands here you know what i mean i don't know i'm preaching now though i, I think the way i'd see it is i would always want to break it down to getting started right so you have um peter Thiel's book on you know zero to one this idea that you have this what seemingly insurmountable challenge to get started and actually get uh, viable, and then there's one to a hundred, and there's some people who you know if this you know if you follow that Silicon Valley analogy, they're like zero to one CEOs, like they're like they get it up, they get it running first couple of years. You know, guys are doing like a Series B, and the guys like I'm out, right? Or like company goes public and he's like I'm out. You don't have as many of I guess you know if you think about the big founders of many of the you know the top twenty most visited sites, you don't have that many people like that, but you do have people with a hunger to exit, move on to the next thing. And so when I look at the continent and I'm asking, you know, who's that guy in, um, you know, in Lilongwe now, just, you know, he's got his decent internet connection. He's showing up to um, the local co-working space. You know, he's got a prototype that he's working on. You know, I'm thinking about how do I make, you know, the, the, the space for him to get from zero to one possible, right? And that is the accelerator, the incubator, the local co-working space, whatever that is. And then it's, you know, it could be a grant. I don't think we can discriminate about the source, but it's just more of when it's this one to a hundred, getting getting to this infinite uh, uh, unicorn-like scale, that's now where I guess like, I, I feel like a number of the challenges we're speaking to really become magnified because, you know, you can get to 60 or you can get to two. And it and it basically and maybe about that point is where things start to get hectic. Uh, maybe to just end with a with a the little um, question that's been on my mind. I've been thinking about so Kenya right now, the future of finance, which is part of what my my keynote here was about. You know, you look at you have, yeah. What were you in time for, bro? Uh, I was giving a a, a speech at, a keynote at the uh, JC Decor conference. Um, the out of home guys who just wanted a sense of. Uh, what's happening in the rest of Africa? You know, what's 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 of interest? So it was a wide-ranging talk, just presenting some trends, and it was, uh, yeah, they're you know great folks, and I appreciate them bringing me down. Uh, so one of the things I spoke about was how well I didn't speak about it in this light. So the future of finance is actually playing out before our very eyes. The fact that you've got an Android and it will be an Android, um, and that you have this last week Google announcing you know a new operating system for Androids. I think without you know below. I think it's one gig of RAM. So just devices that were previously struggling to catch up, 
you know, make sure that they were secure with all the updates. Those devices and the amount of access that external people can get from these devices is, is unparalleled. And in the finance equation, you have two companies, at least in Kenya. Mcopa is certainly a contender, but I, I'll, I'll skip them for now. You have uh, Tala and Branch, who are the, who are the, the respectively, uh, I won't go into who's got bigger market share, uh, but, but they're, they're both fighting and, and playing it out to be the, 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 the mobile end of choice. So, you know, open your phone, give us access to your data, which is, which of course they don't use that phrase. It's just, Hey, it's like, these are the permissions. If you download our app of what you're going to get, meaning, you know, we can read your phone state is your, do you check your screen for the time three or four times a day? Meaning do we check who you're friends with on Facebook? We that's do also. That's right. So we, and, and I are watching where you are 8 PM to 8 AM. I'm watching all these, you know, to the tune of 10,000 different data points, every SMS you've got from your mobile money provider, even SMSs. Are you the one who sends more SMSs? Do you receive more? Do you gamble? Like, How long are you charging your phone? Do you let it die before, before you charge it? That kind of thing. Exactly. And that, data is not ours it's, it doesn't belong to anybody there in my opinion and somebody could come and appoint me uh and and correct me but that that data belongs to two companies based out of silicon valley and they can do anything they want with it and kenya doesn't even to just compare and contrast and show the the state of what government has to do kenya doesn't have data protection uh similar to some of the the legislature that's here in terms of the consumer protection act and what that means for data so even in a place like south africa it's it's hyper it's hypothetical but perhaps some of the things that we're seeing which are labeled as innovation and clearly are would be curtailed a bit or would be would have to happen in certain parameters to give uh you know due respect to to the data of, of folks and then and, and then of course you know you can't tread on this without talking about net neutrality and what does it mean and there's a lot of people on the other side saying, hey, look, just get people connected. We know that's going to uplift them, but just get them connected. Of course, propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> Fake news. Propaganda, guys. <laughs> Who, who's pushing that agenda? Of course, I mean, you know, everybody is, right? Facebook is. Um, with Can a- I tell you, let's talk about Facebook real quick. Beautiful segue into like, guys, we don't even have time. I mean, we, we have to wrap soon. But, but I mean, trending in Europe this, this, uh, this past week has been Facebook. And I think it's and I think it's a great point to, to 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 touch on given our our conversation in this direction right now. So it's France, right? And they they've got a data protection watchdog that's fined Facebook one hundred and fifty thousand euros. But I mean, here's why, right? It's because they they're failing to prevent uh, they they they're finding them for failing to prevent user data being accessed by advertisers. This is around um, the sort of submissions that Facebook had to make to to front to the French government or to the French regulation uh, regulators around their acquisition of WhatsApp and the and they had to convince lawmakers or regulators that you know people's data wouldn't unduly be you know snatched from whatsapp and used you know for advertising purposes elsewhere which i know is definitely happening here because as soon as i'm talking about flying to paris on my whatsapp by some mystery on facebook i'm being pitched flights klm flights to paris and uh, look i have no proof of it so i i stand to be corrected this is alleged um at this point but but certainly i feel Companies like Facebook, for example, are getting a free pass on this continent because they're not being taken sufficiently to task. And that's not to say they shouldn't be trying to do what they're doing. Um, that's just to say we need to get our act together in terms of curtailing, as you put it, uh, what their activists should be for the best interest of the public. They, they would argue that, but aren't we doing internet.org? 
We're giving you free internet. <laughs> I'm so glad Musa, Musa left there because I took a, I took a, I took a, no, he's not. He, <laughs> I, know he's not I know he's not, but I was like, oh my gosh, like Musa's here. It's like, what am I doing? Wow. Yeah, I was almost about to go like, <clears throat> let me uh, compose myself a little bit. But, but yeah, I just, I just kind of, I'm uh, strong opinions loosely held. And I, and I. I'm the same. Listen, I'll change my mind tomorrow, guys. I'm okay. You know, my, it drives my wife mad, but she's beginning to love it. Because, I mean, I'll change on a dime. And it's, and it's good. I think we should all be like that. Oh, carry on. I thought it was cool. Yeah, but we, we can't. There's a great piece on confirmation bias and how there's two things. There's either your desire to be right or to have been right. To be right means you'll seek out the truth, etc. To have been right means you want your current decision to uphold every previous one you've ever made. And that's just, that's just human misjudgment for you. So we can't be that way. And even I know I'm not, you know, like, we're, we're, we're all fallible. Anyway. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. But, but to, to get to it, I think in this case, I, I see a case to be made either way. I, I'm happy that free basics is there. And you people could say, of course, what they're like. I appreciate what, you know, zero rating and a few of the other different styles of, of data and connectivity are and what they do. Simply because I've been looking at some data the last few weeks on, on how, first of all, when somebody gets, there's a beautiful, and we, we, if, I hope you guys are signed up to our new, the Nendo newsletter, okay? It's called the letter N. Anyway, we've been looking at. I am. Yeah, at a study that was done um, over one year where seven different Kenyans were given a smartphone for the first time. And a smartphone can actually accelerate social and financial problems in somebody's life. Cue violence. Accelerate. That's right. You see, that would never register with us. But whoever sits to explain what a megabyte is, and that thing's going to keep going for a larger share of wallet unless you control that. If you do not have what what we, uh, we've been describing as an infomediary, so in the olden age, this is before 2009, it used to be a cyber cafe attendant. Someone like that, uh, now you can have a, I mean, ideally you would have a virtual one like some kind of chatbot or hopefully something embedded in the device. And I'm excited that Android Go and YouTube Go and look, they can do more, but that's a start for me. And I just like just seeing some of the thinking that had gone into it. Point is that this actual device, I mean, the second most visited website on um, on on this year-long study, right, was not Facebook. What was it? I'm not gonna say, but it was a it was a sports betting company, right? Just kind of showing that. And and to be fair, you know, somebody could argue it the other way. And we you know if in the interest of not having confirmation bias, somebody could argue these guys have done a brilliant job at at um, at marketing and branding and have you know really embedded themselves in an ordinary. Fact- drilled a well in the village. Not that, but but I'm being, I'm being yeah, 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 but but yeah, but but but, but yeah. here people were gonna spend those ninety minutes watching Arsenal and Manchester United, and they've just piggybacked on that. And the consequences: people are spending more time and even share of wallet in that, let alone the data itself to access the info to make the um, the actual kinds of 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 plays or whatever it is. So there's that that idea for me of who breaks down what um what a megabyte is is still it's still I I can't say I've, I've figured it out. But I'm happy to see connectivity start to come in a more affordable fashion, given how much can actually start to go. Uh, I, in fact, for me, actually, a big thing. I'm so glad I'm here because it's been on my mind. I wish. Tell us, homie. Tell us. I wish BlackBerry would come back. I think one of the biggest opportunities for BlackBerry is in Africa. An affordable device packaged with a, a data-friendly plan. Um, sold on some kind of subscription model or, or basically, I, I don't want to call it a contract because that means a lot, but just I'm paying a fixed amount every month. Two things to what you've said so far. One, yeah, I, I totally hear about the BlackBerry thing. I was speaking on, you know, I was being interviewed by the BBC about the 3310 and 
I think the premise was how excited is Africa going to be for this new, for this re- refreshed version of the. I was like, who in Africa is trying to be disconnected, y'all? <laughs> I mean, like, clearly you fundamentally don't understand the core issues. Uh, most people don't understand the core issues of what's affecting us on the continent. If you think it's going to be this big hit to have a phone that doesn't let you WhatsApp your family on your way home on a taxi. Do you get what I'm saying? Whereas, you know, that's a first world problem where it's like, oh, we must disconnect because there's just so much Wi-Fi. We're so disconnected. And, and, and so, so, yeah, you know what I mean? And then you apply that mindset to, to Africa and to, to how you price data and where it fits in society and to, the, to its potential use cases. And, and you really have to open up your mind to what is in the best public interest in terms of data and its use on the continent. And, and, and in that context, determine, okay, internet is a right for everybody, right? So number one, that's just me, you know, is kind of processing some of those things you said. And another thing, uh, a few months ago, I was invited to, uh, on SABC, on, on a local language show to, to discuss, you know, people f- frustrated with their data use online. And most of the call-ins were people who had basically run into credit issues because of their smartphone, you know? And, and again, in context, when we say solution, life-changing, uh, you know, in the context of the average African, that doesn't always look like a smartphone. In fact, in many cases, without all the sort of education, basic education that we're talking about, basic, like, listen, you do realize that getting a light from these people means you're starting a credit situation. And you, you do realize that they're monitoring you and this could ruin your credit score for life. Do you, you realize, do you understand that those implications are, 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 are at play in this context? Yes, no? Okay, cool. By the light. Something as basic as that, I'm not saying they don't get these people to tick boxes and they're not doing their due diligence. I'm not even trying to say that they're trying to scam the continent. I'm just saying that sometimes we are not attuned or adequately attuned to the basic, basic needs, information yeah, otherwise that our people have. I, I, I think, I think, a lot of what you're saying resonates, but I do think, and this is perhaps by virtue of being here in South Africa, you're assuming that regulators also have their act together in a sense. I don't see them asking for that kind of uh, data or that factoring into like the actual credit scores, not for a number of years. And by the time they do try and start, it'll, critical mass will have been achieved. It's the same way even right now that the taxman can't touch M-Pesa. And, and like, I'm not going to say likely never will, you know, touch wood, whatever. And who knows really what the inner workings of all that is, but it's not happened. Uh, because by the time that was even factoring in as a conversation, oh, it was, you know, the train had left the station. And as I said, you know, there's like, there's some firepower law, legal on, uh, on that other, on the, you know, on the big green side. Uh, so while I, I recognize that, that element of, you know, somebody signing off, I, I, I think if like, if me, if we were just all to, you know, hop in my car and you guys are in Nairobi and we drive out, you know, you guys, we just, you know stick a finger up in the wind and watch which way the wind is blowing. And we drive that way for six hours and you see somebody with any one of these tools. I mean, you watch it, you, you come back and check in on them, I don't know, once every three months and you'll just watch a change there that just, th- this concept of data, I'm not going to say is elitist, but it's, but there's certainly an element of privilege associated with you. I was mentioning this in the Q&A at the conference. I was like, you have to be really privileged in a sense to sit there and say, that um, that that you're concerned about your data because you you got you for that to be a concept you have to be socioeconomically somewhere where other other people are trying to have it's a concession they're making and it's a means to an end and yes there's a dark side but that end is more important than 
than than this because it's like oh it's like there's my neighborhood loan shark and his and his muscle guys and here is kind of like you know somebody's just gonna look at my existing phone my existing records and take a bunch of what I've already been doing and lend me off of that come on boss like this is my life in this like in this town so if if we sit here and talk in data um I I think it's worth discussing. Um, but I, I have to bring that other, that other element just to say it's a, it's a privilege based discussion. And some people are ruthless about what I'm saying. So they're presented with a lot more, um, they're like, you know, oh, you're too, you know, so they, 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 you kind of, they, they would even justify abuse. And if you try and, you know, so abuse of data or, you know, darkish workings of data, I mean, there's only one player in the, in the market and this is Tala. I, I stand corrected because there could be others. I just hope they'd announce it. So Tala actually forwards, um, I believe, um, positive news of how you use their lending app to the credit uh, reference bureau they don't have to do that they've chosen to do that as a differentiator and we know it's for commercial ends but i'm like big up to yourself because if you're gonna do that you're actually showing somebody that yes there's the using of the app but they're the only player in about a dozen other players in the market who bothers to to actually have it reflect positively on you if you do walk into a bank weeks and months later because for everybody else, it, it lives and dies on the phone, showing their commercial ends. Um, whereas if now you walk into the formal uh, banking and finance ecosystem, you have access to other things by virtue of just using this app. I actually made this argument in a totally different context. I was being humble to the fact that this very podcast is an elitist proposition in the context of... No, in the context of the average African, guys, that's the truth of it, you know? And it's, it's, it's humbling to say, I mean... Even just talking mobile money as a trend, we're still, by and large, as a continent, very all markets considered, a cash economy or cash economies. So, I mean, sorry? Absolutely. I mean, some people have even argued. I know this sounds complete. I must cite it and, and give a source. But somebody argued, despite all the benefits you see and hear MPESA having, that Kenya is like, I must, I'll find the number in like the break, but but it, it's a cash economy like you would not believe. And that's the enemy. And uh, and I really recommend, if any of you have listened to it, it's it's fascinating. You must listen to a, a, a pair of podcasts done by the, I think it's the WNYC um, show Planet Money about demonetization in India. That It is a it is the most, uh, you know, you, you'll feel somewhat outraged and then you just have all these existential questions about how, they turned cash that was sitting, basically they made cash the enemy and we'll only know in, let's call it five years and so on. But as of now, the president could not be more popular. But literally, if you hear the horror stories of people who, you know, died in the line on the way to, to, to taking the cash back, it's, it's the most, it's certainly, it struck me as bizarre, but it's also one of those things where you find, I've been talking a lot about like my kind of four, it's going to sound so like consultant, but my kind of four P's of Africa is like, it's like <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> You've got four P's. Mark Kaig was four P's. It's uh, it's it's people, um, potential peculiarities and practicalities, and like it's it's and that just speaks to the fact that on the peculiarity side, like my brain can wrap its its head around this guy, basically rendered like. Gosh, the whole country's cash irrelevant. I mean, the new money that they printed, which were coming to exchange for, couldn't fit in ATMs. I mean, like, it's, it's dumbfounding that, that there was such, there was loss and hurt and all these other things. But literally, people are happy. Even the people who suffered are like, oh, like, now we have a sense of, of, of patriotism and a sense of, of, you know, previously we had, we struggled and we were in lines. But now I'm, 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 I'm part of these other people all in a line to trade cash because we're trying to get those guys who, you know, misuse cash and we end up paying for it with corruption and otherwise. It's, it's fascinating. I'd recommend it because it just helps, again, just temper all of our, our, our like, you know, our, our bubbling 
and just showing that are just as complexes. Yeah, well, it, just the fact that you can have a rational argument here, which somebody sees and talks about one way, but then you see what are scores of other people who seem to have a completely different take, and you can't explain it. And it's a, in this case an Indian thing, um, or in some cases it could be an African thing, and it's counter, um, it's counter to your own notions and your judgments. But it's actually the way people see things. Perception. Yes, yes, folks. We do not have. <laughs> <laughs> we need, yeah, we we need a couple more days to talk about that. <laughs> uh, we've got some. We got so. Listen, um, I know it's a podcast and all, but uh, we do have to wrap this thing. And I said that like half an hour ago. What a treat having you guys in this. I love having you every two weeks, Musa. It's been it's been such a treat. As for you, it's awesome having you in town. Um, and so, just this is going to be rapid fire. I just want one word to describe your thoughts on the following. The, I'm going to uh, top things that I need reaction from you guys because I value it. Okay, so I need your reaction. Hot takes. Hot takes. I found, uh, what, I found out what that means the other day and it is not a compliment from the side of the, the journalists where you're just basically, basically saying something so that guys on Twitter like start to draw you. But I will not give you that. I'll try and have a, a good sharp take. Let's see. A sharp take, not a hot take. Okay, then. I didn't even know that distinction. Okay, so Smart Cab is the latest ride-sharing service in Nigeria. As it turns out, um, Nigeria needed one more. <laughs> anyway, um, they, they launched in February this year. Here's their differentiator. They they plan to allow you to get a 2% cut out of any rider that you, you sort of refer to the service. So he's building a pyramid. And, um, and of course, you know, what's the other thing that he's doing? And he's also letting riders choose their preferred riders. Uh, he's letting drivers choose their preferred riders. And, oh, he's letting riders choose their preferred ride and drivers. That, that, that's there in Kenya, and I've never used it. Like, I just, I'm like, you know, it, it sounds great. It's a nice bullet point in your feature list and differentiator list, but I can't wait for somebody to show me how it actually works in practice because, you know, I'm at home. I need to get somewhere. I don't care who picks me up. Right? Your thoughts? Especially because of Nigerian traffic. Like, uh, surely the closest person to me is the one that's going to get my business, right? So uh, I wonder whether it actually, from a, from a reality perspective, it's going to make a difference. No, no, no. Me, I want Ikpe, and he's across town. And No, I'm joking. I would never. Yeah. Hey, hey, look, if, 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 it, if I, I, the relationships are strong. I mean, just today, I don't even know if I should admit this, but I, I rode with an Uber some, and I told the guy, hey, you know what? Conversation's been all right. <laughs> Why don't you stick around? I'll request one in like two minutes just now. Um, and basically Uber knows this. So the guy could, every time I requested one and I canceled too, like it didn't pop up on his phone. So I was like, you know, and he was actually, was very okay with it. It's, I don't know why it's, I've, I've seen that happen in other countries. Um, but it's obvious that Uber's on, on, on to the drivers now. Uh, yeah. I think in that case where, where the request would be practical, right? So if, as you said, the person is close by and I can choose them, yeah. it makes sense. But in, you know, in the big bad world of, of traffic and the big bad world of geography, that's not always the case. So as an option, yeah, maybe nice, but if that's built into the system, that might be an irritation. And Uber's also got an obligation to make sure everyone makes a living. So you can't be the sentient guy. Like you'll be nice to everybody and you'll be the only one who anyone, anyone wants to ride with. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Makes a lot of sense. But the money thing. Yeah. Money thing. Give money back to the people. We like that. Okay, so every t- everyone you refer, you get two percent. I wonder if it's two percent from the first ride they have, or the- forever they are after. Otherwise, you're, you're gonna make millionaires, eh? Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> Terms and conditions apply, no doubt. Zeno Ventures, uh, a silicon-based um, uh, uh, venture capital firm, which you can find very little information about on the internet, nevertheless. Um, <laughs> that's our conspiracy. Theory. 
we need a theme track for conspiracy <laughs> theories, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we, run the, we run them regularly these days. Yeah. Yeah, so. I got no speculation, you know, like big up to them, but uh, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, I hadn't even put the question to you. So, Xeno Ventures, they're investing an undisclosed amount in the Y Combinator um, uh, uh, alumnus, uh, Tizetti. Now, the Tizetti's aim, of course, is to, to, to provide unlimited uh, broadband access across Nigeria. They've got these packages um, that they've been offering, and it seems they've gotten a vote in the right direction. I hate this has only barely made our news uh, list this week, only because of how I like what they're out to do. But I hate the fact that it's undisclosed because it doesn't give us a sense of scale, um, and also just what's their tide really but anyway what do you guys think of this do you think it's something that could catch on do you think unlimited data as a proposition unlimited data as a proposition is 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 something nigeria could catch on in nigeria hey unlimited data unlimited electricity you know you gotta you gotta start you know you're it's a it's it's the new maslow's uh pyramid you know of of needs and and data is there, but it is above electricity. So, I mean, like, you know, more part to them, if they can find a way, and I'm, I'm big on this, you know, companies that set out to solve one problem and end up solving a couple others on the way, if they start figuring out, you know, maybe they end up building some, some actual products or, or physical, uh, it could be that, that, that their entire setup includes a backup power, you know, so almost brick like, right. Uh, I don't know. Let's see, because if you're providing just the connectivity, that's uh, in this part of the world and certainly for the continent, that's that's only a fraction of the problem. Now, it could be a very profitable fraction. So it all depends on how they go about it. And yes, hoping I've actually never heard Andile say he hates anything. So I'm kind of sitting here going like, I'll never do anything undisclosed to Andile. But um, um, yeah, I think I, I, it'd be great to know how much is raised or what they're their um their their roadmap is so yeah, like what are you planning to do with the money i mean reach out to us to zeti we really like what we we think we're hearing you say you're going to do um let us know it's wifi.com.ng check it out they offer unlimited data plans starting at roughly 30 dollars every month yeah. i think uh, the the nature of this conversation so my hot take is uh what are you solving and what are you selling? Those are two different propositions, but they both need to be asked. Because solving one issue means, you know, as we've seen with electricity, as we've seen with these guys, probably not. So that's not what they're selling. So that's the, that's the hot take. What are you solving? And what are you selling? This sounds like impact, right? It's a given our discussion, right? So, yeah, well, it's guys' impact. So we need to figure that out. I think there's always going to be this murky thing about be very clear about that because you can pretty much solve anything and come into an environment and be like, yeah, you see, I'm solving this. Ah. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, what you're selling is a very different thing altogether. Would they have let you in if they knew what you were selling? And we care. So this is come from the context of guys, we actually care. Speaking of selling, Quese is selling their partnership with ESPN as the best thing since sliced bread. They think um, they, they're taking on uh, whatever's out there in cable land at the moment, and they think they're just going to kill it. They are making an African version of Sports Center. They are they're just taking over, boy. Like, look out, super sport or not. First of all, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying the playoffs right now. And um, and no matter what, how anybody feels on the podcast, it's going to irk some people, but I got to get it off my chest. LeBron James is the best player of all time. Um, now, question, I, I'm excited about that. I'm okay with that. Yeah, good. But there's some listeners who are just there cringing right now, like, oh, this guy just had... Um, yeah, go Cavs. Um, what I'd say is, I think what's huge about it for me is, I actually wasn't that, that big into into basketball and so on, but Quest really got onto my radar. Um 
Unfortunately, I have not been able to sign up. So I don't know if in Kenya they're up and running yet because I did look like about last week because I signed up to NBA.com. But just I think the the bigger picture we've seen Supersport almost like peel back a bit and defer, especially with the with the Premier League to the UK feed, the UK studio, the UK guests and the entire way that they want to run it out of out of there. And on this end, we're seeing Questa kind of step up and say, hey, we want to make that sports center. We want to actually uh, play it up this way. And competition for me is always going to be a win, especially when it comes to live sports. Uh, and who knows what the bigger play is? I mean, certainly from Kenya, if we look at Sport Pesa, fourth most visited website, now, you know, second Premier League team that they're sponsoring. Um, other questions aside, it's interesting to see. I, I'm, I'm curious if they will you know, if you plug in at the sports level, there's a lot, there's a much bigger value chain there. And, and I'd be curious how they go about realizing that. I think what makes sports work in the US is uh, the channel is one thing, but I think what is actually behind the channel in terms of data and how they can use data to drive inside conversation, excitement and drama is important. So I think the play into the sports space um, is short-sighted if you haven't got a strong data play around understanding Things like player performance, things like stats and crucial information, things like player journeys. Where did this player start? Where did so all of that back end stuff, which ties into some of the conversations we're having around hyper performance, um, you know, Internet of Things. How do you monitor behavior? How do you monitor hard? All that kind of stuff is going to be what is going to sustain the play. So I think the play is right, but I, I think there's a piece, and I'm not sure whether it's part of the plan or not. Um, but there's a piece around the kind of stuff that's going to keep people watching. Um, and imagine you had that kind of information around your favorite player in, in, in an Africa context. You've watched his story from when he was a you know, little league guy right up to the whatever they call the equivalent of the playoffs you understand when his heart rate is going up it means that he's about to make the great shot you know that kind of stuff and by the way dimension data is playing in that field they they have actually they're working on getting stadium setups that actually plug into player player vitals in that way like literally you know on the screen and stuff and if they can do that Yay, yay, yay. Then they've, so, then they've, you know, I think then they're onto a great thing. But I think just the pure, we've got a channel that does sports and we're leveraging ESPN and we do, uh, nah, nah, I'm not too sure. So well, let me tell you what, um, I, okay, I've, I've made this disclosure before. I'm, I love Econet. I love what they represent and I like the idea of Quest. No, disclaimer, full disclaimer. Copy and paste never appeals to me. I've never seen it work on the continent. Supersport is a strong locally homegrown brand now granted it's not representative it might not be everything we all want it to be probably no mba obviously all that kind of stuff and the certain things that you want from it but to their credit they are a, a world-class sports casting offering and you will not overnight just by espning yourself take them on and succeed right so yes i'm interested to see what you'll do with the espn website the mobile app that comes later that they say is coming out later this year that it's going to be africa specific i'm interested to see how you're going to make african versions of of espn shows we've seen mta mtv for example succeed in that space you know to, to a limited degree you know you can sort of localize that brand and 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 get people to love it um, but if, if this is just a pure sort of cable play, Hey, we're with ESPN and they're so huge and they're great. And they've got the NBA. If that's your play, then I don't, I, I, I'm not excited. I mean, ESPN just had some layoffs too. And they're, you know, like their model is looking really shaky. They had, you know, they tried to go into the respective cities so that you had now an ESPN in that city for that city, then a large ESPN. And it's, it just seems like, you know, they've actually let go of what people say are like some really amazing people just along the way. So it's, um, you know, hey, you know, maybe maybe developing uh, and, and 
this market's now appealing to them. We'll see. But uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd say it's, you know, there's some caution, especially given ESPN's trying to consolidate wherever they are right now. And I think you might run out of rope. And once again, coming back to the idea around solving problems in Africa around the value chain, right? So ESPN um, almost are right at the end of the value chain in terms of we'll show you what happened then. But then, you know, in South Africa, we know, and in Africa, there's the whole long tail around development around how the process works in terms of finding players how scouts are set up in south africa there's only like one or two black scouts that find rugby players as an example so all of those things in terms of the value chain become important in being able to create to create great sports casting and i think once again if they're thinking really strategically about the long term that is really going to be where the value and the content and also this problem solve for them and that's going to create a position where they can differentiate otherwise you know super sport um, have been playing in this game have been playing very well have they taken into consideration the value chain i don't think so are they probably another kind of foreign aid play if you think about their relationship with with uh, naspers maybe they are so strive might be in a unique position to try and debunk this and i think there's a lot to think about yeah great points all around guys no but i was actually gonna say uh and this is completely unrelated i was very happy to be walking around Johannesburg today and uh i i, I did like a double take because i was like you know my eyes you know went one way and i had to look back and i was like is that a deal on the newspaper so big up my brother i know it's like i'm not trying to embarrass you but just saying that i was like hey I know, it's like i know I was, I was almost at the reception saying i'm here to see this guy this guy right here you know yeah so it's really kind man that's really kind um shout out to the good people at um, business report, of course, we're syndicated across South Africa, and of course, African Independent. Shout out to you, Africa, because we come at you uh, once a week as well. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's kind. He's got me blushing. <clears throat> okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> we're winding down now. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna skip right across Nasper's uh, latest big ass, you know, acquisition, spending something like 387 million euro. Um, on uh, the, the food delivery business, uh, delivery hero in Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. Google it and see what's up. What's up there? But it's it's just worth mentioning because it's arguably, in fact, the biggest tech deal of the week. Like a local entity like buying internationally, which um, Nasperis is definitely on the warpath in terms of like just acquiring great businesses abroad. Um, look out for them. But n- nonetheless, let's move on to. The last thing I want us to discuss. I mean, how can we not? Do you want to cry? Who want to? Who want to cry? Huh? Come on now. Is Tim Cook not now vindicated for not trying to help the FBI crack that phone all that time ago? There was a terrorist who 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 you know did bad things in in America, and of course the FBI wanted to hack his phone, and they needed Apple's help. And Tim Cook says we can't do that. We can't. We can't expose our you know, mil- hundreds of millions of people who trust us to 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 potential vulnerabilities by handing you access to to these things. And now look where all those vulnerabilities the CIA has been has been hoarding have gotten us. Right? I don't know. That's just my sense. What do you think? I have a different take, and it has nothing to do with Tim Cook. Is it conspiracy? No. Oh. <laughs> Conspiracy, or is this is this does this have to do with you wanting to make sure you get your next American visa? I, I thankfully I have the visa. The question is, if I get to the border, am I making it out the airport? Oh yeah, because there's there's all that too. You can have the visa. You're not gonna get it. No, and to be fair, okay. So let me also, for the sake of making sure that when my family wants to travel, we travel. So no, here's the deal, guys. Um, am I saying that I, I believe data sovereignty is a huge issue in in the in defense of the FBI and and and, and other sort of entities in that sort of high tier level of intelligence? 
I don't think enough African com- uh, countries are taking it as seriously as they are. Okay, number one. Number two, though, um, that's not the same thing as realizing that because of the interconnectedness of the world, you cannot carelessly like hoard vulnerabilities and think they'll be safe just because you're the government. Do you get what I'm saying? And so maybe we need a whole rethink around that whole thing and the role of these big tech companies in in context to that as stewards and gatekeepers in helping us all stay safe, right? So that's all I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that, you know, a free-for-all happen. That said, what do you think? Yeah, I just want to point out something. I think the bigger story for me here and that's a bit underreported with a WannaCry ransomware attack is the nature of software and how it's sold and Microsoft's role um, in this. So if you, uh, there's a brilliant piece in the New York Times by a lady called um, uh, Zeynep Tufeci. And so she's, she's spoken, what she spoke about basically is how, how this became so bad. And it's squarely down to the fact that a vulnerability, um, you know, so the NSA had, uh, that's the U.S. National Security Agency had found this vulnerability, which, you know, who knows how they chose to use it to perhaps, you know, solicit intelligence and so on and so forth. Anyway, hackers uh, secured this, the details about this vulnerability and Microsoft and the NSA were in communication. And so it was like, hey, this is out in the open and hackers may have it. So here's what Microsoft did. They, they and many other players in Silicon Valley and across the world, they sell software as is, meaning that, hey, I'm going to sell you this piece of software. And my license protects me from anything that happens going forward. And the challenge of that is that when the NSA and Microsoft discussed this, they said, okay, we're going to issue a free patch. But if you're a corporate, if you're a hospital, if you're a, 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 a medical center, you have to buy a special paid license to get what was a free patch for everybody else. So it deliberately left the most vulnerable larger corporations which serve you know tens of millions of people across the world they were specifically vulnerable because that's how software is sold so for me it's this philosophy which builds on what zainab says about how we we sell software we just assume that that's how it's going to be that's how microsoft and the others do it so it must be the way when it is not the way and it's not the only way because they (laughs) we have uh, some uh, some music conspiracy music music in the background Yeah, so I, I, I think for me, it's the fact that... that so you, okay, so you're taking it a step back, right? So uh, my surface evaluation involves the way that security agencies typically go about trying to protect us using cyber, cyber vulnerabilities, right? Um, either to exploit them in order to do things that access information that, you know, I'll, you know, prevent the next bomb attack or, you know, that kind of thing. And it's, it's all good stuff for, done for good reason. The question is, where did the problem start? And, and you basically pointing to a systemic problem that got us here in the first place, right? Is that, is that, am I summing it up correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that, um, if you think about what the ransomware did, you came to your computer and discovered somebody had taken control of your computer through a vulnerability and there was a ransom. You have three hours to pay us $300 in Bitcoin. But the genesis of that, like I, I, the whole Tim Cook thing, that is more of like a philosophical debate because he, he's Apple. I mean, you know, where you, there's Max in, in this place, but so we, you know, so we weren't affected. But, 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 but my point is that 
if you're if you're on a Windows machine, you have to go to the source. So I I, I don't vindicate Tim Cook. I I'm kind of staying clear of that. Only to say that in this particular case, I want to read uh, uh, like a powerful quote here in this in this article. You know, we're we're pushing the Internet of Things, right? So baby monitors, refrigerators, solar lights, right? And those are sold on the same mechanism. This idea of it's sold as is. So if there is a vulnerability, you don't hold the company accountable. Right. And if there was a patch to fix it, uh, that's 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 in some ways that's on you. Um, and here I think so what the Microsoft ended up doing is after it had been discovered and was out in the open that they withheld this update from the National Hospital Service in the UK, you know, treating 50 million people, ambulances having to be routed. They gave it away for free. But if you think about it, and this is the quote I just want to leave. It's kind of a bit of a, a, a bombshell here. Um, the money that that Microsoft made off of the people who paid for it the first time never expired, even though the licenses did, right? So they have a right to fix those defects. And if you think about it this way, right? If you're if Microsoft is saying pay us extra money or we will withhold critical security updates, then that is its own form of ransomware. Dang! Drops mic. <laughs> that is pretty pretty powerful. I like that, and it is. I mean, at the end of the day, if you've done something and you need to correct it, but you. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but... Uh... But somehow, in our minds, we accept that's how software is bought. Yeah. But but as you can tell, you think about the, the rest of the continent. You know, there's still people who are still on Internet Explorer 6. Now, you can argue with me all you like. That's just, you know, people here are still using pirated software. Now, the Microsofts and the Googles and everyone else is trying to change that. But the truth is that, you know, if you're... You know, I, I was... Um, let's just say, even... I've looked at the price of these, some of these bits of software, and... Yeah, it, uh, it, it's a pretty penny if you're not in a position with a company that can, you know, you can like, you know, build that stuff to expense it. I still don't even have uh, like the, the office suites on my Mac, you know, even though I still think in that, like I still love, I love the office suites, right? It, it's, it's what I came up in, but I just can't bring myself to, sp- to part, part with what's required to get like a legit version for my Mac, you know, so I totally get you. And listeners, if you've tuned in today and didn't learn something well i don't know i don't know how we're gonna help you but <laughs> yeah it's gonna be a tough one it's gonna if you've tuned in today and you haven't got something from this or you aren't gonna go start a business <laughs> then you've got a problem <laughs> i'm perplexed right in a good way right my, my brothers here are perplexing me they know they're just stretching my mind um and like you say i i just I, I love this medium because it allows me to be wrong about stuff just put it out there um i think it can have rubs as you pointed out earlier but i think I, i'd love for any of you listening to take us up or you know challenge anything you've heard here today enlighten us we can't possibly know everything and and we can't possibly learn everything that we need to know in order to, to move the needle for this ecosystem and so that's where you come in as a community we'd love to hear from you if there's anything we've touched on any story perhaps a story we left out that has to be in perhaps a a a, a, a signal or, or a trend that's 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 forming that we we haven't quite caught on this show we want to hear about it please give us a shout on twitter we are at african roundup uh, send us an email hello at african roundup.com and of course please send us those audio comments uh because we'd love to include them on the show get your voice heard take us on in in the voice <laughs> i won't say in the flesh in the voice we'd love to get your voice out to our to our incredible listeners around the world and and yeah before i thank the gentlemen and before they go one more one last time i'd like to thank the team behind the afrobytes tech conference 2017 for sponsoring this episode of the african tech roundup they certainly got their value for money this week or all, all all two hours plus of a podcast to sponsor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually just wanted to say something real quick to the listeners. Did you? <laughs> to, yeah, to the listeners. I actually think 
Uh, I appreciate the audience, um, and as, as you can tell, we've got strong opinions, but loosely held. I, I, there's one particular audience member who wrote to you. I think it was when you were talking about fake news. That really changed my mind. Like he, he or she, I think sent an, an audio note. You either played it or you talked about it. I think it might have been someone from Washington. I can't remember. Someone from the states. And so, and so, big up to those people who actually write in and and talk. You know, that person who was probably listening now. I, I was actually very positively affected by what you said, and and I. Had to change my mind, and I had had really committed myself to one point of view, and and so I'm always glad, of course, to hear from any 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 listeners, and um, and thanks to you, Andile, you do a great job. Oh, word! Come on, thank you, man. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> All right, stop it now. Stop it. Stop it. Too much love. Too much love. Okay, so again, the Afrobytes Tech Conference team, thank you so much. Afrobytes Tech Conference 2017 coming up, of course, uh, June 8th and 9th. Can't wait to see you in Paris. Uh, check out everything you need to know about the conference. Watch the video. Find out who's speaking. It's an incredible list of people. And most importantly, register uh, to attend at afrobytes.com. Ah! Is thank you. Is, can thank you be enough, really? Thank you. Huh? We can start there. We need some party. What are the hot shots? Hot, qu- hot quotes. What are they called? Hot takes. <laughs> hot takes. Okay, so here's a hot take. You guys are the best. Here's my hot take. In a world of fake news, stay real. <laughs> Dude, you've got a crazy radio voice, man. I'm like, get this guy. Wow. He's been, he's been doing it. You, you, both, you both do. You guys actually, yeah, I... I know, yeah, it's, it's funny just being here because I feel like I'm actually with you every day. It's like, you know, like I, I normally listen on my drive to work, so. I was about to say, well, you are technically with us. It's true, it's true, it's true. It's very meta. Very meta. No, but guys, really, thank you so much for, for adding such value to the show and for being here. Um, you are great people, um, good friends, and most importantly, uh, amazing Africans. So, thank you, Musa Kalenga. Thank you, Mark Kaigwa, the very finest from Zambia, Kenya. Zimbabwe. It's Andy Lemasu signing out. Uh, do take care, Africa.